Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 279 of the Morning Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario. I'm joined once again by Harmon Lippus Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubens online from San Jose, California. All righty then. I'm quite sure, by the way, that uh, if Greg were to vote on the decade debate, yeah. he would agree with me. <laughs> Which one? So I have one that that's decade ends next year. No, it ends this year. No, 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 no. Yes, it does. No, no. Seriously? Yeah. Why do you say that? Because the first decade was year one through 10. Second was 11 through 20. Third was mm-hmm. 21 through 30. 31 through 40. Shall I continue? Send you a link. Well, we're going to talk about this being the last <laughs> show of the decade, whether you like it or not. You can, you can, you can, you'll have your, your, your chance to get on your little soapbox and dispute that. And you look up the definition of decade here. You send, me, send me your link. I, I get the whole, you know, it's not a zero based algorithm nonsense and all that stuff, or zero based array, I should say. Decade. A period of 10 years. Currently, there is currently an ongoing argument as whether the new decade will begin on January 1st, 2020 or January 1st, 2021. Mm-hmm. According to the original convention of decades, the, the 203rd decade will begin on January 1st, 2021, as was first year, as the first year was year one, not zero. Right. However, commonly used form of decades, they are immune from no, no, no zero year argument because in their titles, thus the 2020s will begin on January 1st, 2021. 2020. Correct answer depends on which decade is being referred to. Oh, there. So we're starting the podcast with an argument, Jaime. Do we believe the Farmer's Almanac? What does the Farmer's Almanac say? I think the question... Well, I just read from Wikipedia and it said the same thing in the sa- in, in the yeah. fourth point here, that it, it depends on whether you're a flat earther or not, right? So which one's the flat earther? The one that doesn't agree with math well, and science? So, so <laughs> let's, let's... Well, so, okay, so if we can't call it the end of the last podcast of the decade or last episode of the decade, then yeah. we can call it the the uh, 10th anniversary of the, the introduction uh, of the iPad. Yeah, mm-hmm. we can do that, sure. We can, yeah, so, sure. so technically, yeah, so it's, it's the last episode of the first 10 years. And going back to, like, you know, I think 
the genesis of this podcast was that, you know, technical cycles run in 10 years and we're at the 10th year of, of that cycle ending, right? So, which is it's an interesting point though. Like, I was thinking about this just before starting recording today. I started my web development, my serious web development in 1999, mm-hmm. right? And I'm pretty sure I downloaded, I know I downloaded the SDK in, in uh, uh, you know, the iPhone SDK in 2009, right? Yeah. And yeah, so, and I published my I first. started, yeah, I started doing iOS stuff development full-time in 2009 yeah yeah so i intended to, i intended to dip into iphone development but you know then it was when steve jobs and we can talk about this but more on the show but when steve jobs introduced the ipad was was the genesis for me right mm-hmm. and that was in 2010 for those of you driving at home anywho let me go back to your farmers you farm farmers i like what am i planting seeds now Farmers <laughs> Almanac. i think going uh going to the uh the year thing i i do think that from a absolute correctness standpoint mm-hmm. Um, it is correct that the decade doesn't end until 2021. However, the popular usage, because it makes more sense to use round numbers, would be, say, 2020. So I think we should just say, hey, you know what? This was a really weird decision way back when. Um, it's not as if it hasn't already been revised a little bit in terms of the way that people refer to things. Uh, you know, there's like common era or something instead of uh, BC and AD. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's funny. It's funny though. I just realized that Mark is correct because 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of my favorite movies. I've known that since I was like nine. Right. To, so to me, the deck, the millennia didn't end until 2001. So yeah, you're right. There you go. That. There you go. Okay. So, yeah. Right. So this decade right. is, so this, this podcast is canceled basically. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, so it's just a regular old podcast. <laughs> just a regular, just another, another spin around the sun. Is our, yeah. We could read number and have, our own year zero or year one, if we go yeah. that route, and just yeah. start it from 2007. Technically, this is year five of M- MTJCE, one of the well, code era. Well, so there we go. So we started in so we started in 2004. Right? So you're saying that wait, we started in 2004. Yeah, so no, we already passed. Not 2004. 2014. Yeah, so we've been we doing this for 15 years. <laughs> no, no, we started in 2014. 2014. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we can start so our own calendar. So we've already we've already had our fifth anniversary. That's right. Right. Yeah. So we'd be in the sixth year. If we were looking at it that way, we are into our sixth year. That's that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we'll start off. Uh, this might be a long show. I'm going to just dig right in. Um, uh, let's see. What did I say? Oh yes, uh, we we were t- we were talking about uh, the the ultra wide band uh, problem uh, that Apple has. And actually, there's another article that, that came out I wanted to talk about, but I don't know if I linked it here in the show. But this is our fact check portion. We also talked about on the same show last week about iOS 13.3 coming out. Jaime mentioned that, right? And I, iOS 13.3 actually has the patch in the software for this ultra wide bug uh, location issue that that uh, apple was was getting uh, blasted for um so i put feature question mark as in as in you know bugs are sometimes referred to as undocumented features so that's that um and just another point here i was listening to the accidental tech podcast a day or so after we we went to air um jaime was uh, measuring um large volumes of money changing hands and that kind of stuff you know awards being handed out in terms of um mac mac pro mac pros right like mm-hmm. at what six fifty five thousand fifty eight thousand dollars? It's like fifty two thousand five hundred ninety nine, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So that's your scale. But on the accidental tech podcast, they were they were uh, using increments of MacBook Airs as as uh, mm. you know because roughly around a thousand dollars, right? US. So yeah, just thought it was an interest, an interesting point of fact. And uh, so I'll let you run with the Ask MTJC, honey. We have one from. Uh 
friend of the show, former guest host and fruit enthusiast. And troller, podcast troller. <laughs> podcast troller, shaking his fists at his phone right now, uh, Gregory Archibald Heo Esquire, who says, TCC, Transparency Consent Control, is the prompt you get when an app requests access to photos, location, contacts, etc. And he has a very handy link Great. to ASCII WWDC session from 2016. What is it? Session wow. 705. Mm. How iOS security really works. So we should hang our shit our heads in shame because we should have known that ECC. I never hear anybody talk about it. In yeah, that, the first time I'd ever heard of it was on that that post we read last week. Yeah, like I, I would know the the prompt you you could describe to somebody what it is, but I didn't know the actual term. Right, right. Yeah, so that'll be in the show notes for those of you driving home. Cool, cool. At work, I have a a, a, a decoder ring page on our Confluence that I put little out, you know DLAs on, and uh, I'll have to add that one in there for people. It'll probably take me about a year for them to start using it. Anywho, um, did I say that out loud? Um, <laughs> Uh, we've been talking a few times about the cost of apples in Australia, and I just thought this was an interesting follow-up. I found an article I was reading about uh, about the, the new Mac Pro and uh, talking about you know the fact that uh, Apple's new Mac Pro can cost almost a hundred thousand dollars. But why? And this is of course in an Aussie um, article, I think New Zealand actually, New Zealand Herald, and that's a hundred thousand Australian dollars, right? And just for scale, I've put here that I think the price, the starting price of the the unit is. Uh, uh, five nine 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 or $5,999. Is that correct? U.S. dollars? Yeah, I think so, because I think people have been talking about it as $6,000. Yeah, right. And then, so so in Australian dollars, uh, the equivalent of, of uh, that monies, if you tra- just change the monies, uh, is $8,675, which is interesting because in the article, I think they mentioned that the starting price in Australia is not um, what I just said, but it is, in fact, $9,999. So there's a difference of around 100 Four hundred dollars, right? In the in, for three seventy five or three twenty five in the exchange, so that's a bump too, right? Remember, I was all talking about the fact. I was talking about the fact that when things come up to Canada, there seems to be this sort of hidden bump in the price, not just a matter of exchanging the the price exchange, right? Or the, the what do you call it, currency exchange, right? Interesting. So it's it's pretty painful if you're in um, in Australia or in New Zealand and you want to buy a Mac Pro. Well, it's pretty painful here too. It's just more painful there. Yeah. Oh, and, and just as a follow up, so I, I contacted one of my reseller buddies who's still still in the resale market. And uh, I asked him, I said, like, you know, has anybody ordered any of these things? And uh, he says he's actually thinking of getting one, which boy, wow. must have fallen and banged his head. But yeah, I, I, I doubt he's going to jump in and, you know, soup it all up. But, you know, still, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can you can get a, a pretty powerful one at the lower range of the sure. price point. Yeah. But yeah, but, uh, yeah you don't need to get the, you know, multiple terabytes of RAM. Well, I think out of the box, it's 32 gig, right? Of RAM. Already, the RAM. Uh, sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Which yep. is already, yeah, 32. Uh, it comes with, out of the box comes with uh, eight core processor, which is not too shabby. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thirty-two gigs of RAM, eight gig, eight gigabyte uh, graphics card, which is pretty pretty awesome too for video RAM. And then, but the two fifty-six gig hard drive that was that I think that would probably be the only thing that I would uh, I would upgrade. Would I'd probably go with like a terabyte or two terabyte drive, right? Depending on my on my budget. But I'm not planning can, on buying one. Can of these you things. actually get this? Is kind of interesting. Can you actually get a model that has more RAM than hard drive? <laughs> is that possible? Yeah, of course. I yeah, you, you were. 
were saying you were saying or last week that the um the max ram configuration was some crazy number like Let's oh see. yeah so it says okay the maximum ram is actually uh one and a half terabytes yes right yeah. right yeah oh yeah so you could yeah definitely. so yeah, you so could. you definitely could get more ram than hard drive Amazing. so it's funny the first time i ever met a guy who had 32 i think it was 32 megabytes of ram in his mac and this is mm. like back in the old portable days and you know i went to his desk and he had like you know 10 applications open i'm like are you crazy like back, was that back then you were you were lucky if you could get two applications to run at a time and uh, it's i was thinking about this like so yeah you so you you max out your your ram and you max out your your ssd drive i mean like if you have a terabyte of ram why do you even bother saving documents yeah, anymore right you know as long as you've got a ups and you've got constant power you don't need to save anything right? yeah yeah it's funny you're talking about the old days when it was it was risky to have even two applications open at once well i remember in system seven days it was risky to have even one application open at once. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no no i mean so so i'm talking about like in system six yeah there was a thing yeah. called multi-finder, multi-finder which was right. super buggy right? right 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 so in fact we used to when i first started working on mac we used to we used to you couldn't run multi-finder it was ridiculous but that meant that you when you switched into an application you didn't have access to the finder anymore right mm-hmm. so i used to run um they were called uh, c devs and inits so inits and c devs and uh, so it was a control panel device or whatever that's what c dev stood for and i used to run one called desktop which would allow me it would be like a menu item that i could go in and i could move i could, could move files around it had a cool thing because not only did it have copy like you can copy things from one place to another you could actually move them so it would actually if you want to move a file from one folder to the other mm-hmm. you could only do that in the finder right um but you could rename things you could do you can do all the finder operations in this app called desktop and it was actually better than the finder to be honest with you right um but that you know that went away when when we went to system seven and system eight system seven was was not as bad as system six right system seven was pretty terrible system eight was the stable one again no 7.5 was the stable one mm, okay yeah, we, maybe worked, we worked on 7.5 for a long time okay yeah, yeah. when did you start working on max uh Originally, probably 1985. Oh, so you were on the Mac right from the get-go. Yeah, but but I, it wasn't consistent the whole time. So right. so I worked on yeah I worked on those little Macs. I mean, when I say worked on, it was sort of home use. You know, writing mm-hmm. papers when I was in college on these the little Macs with the, the original Macs, the classics with the yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But then I worked in a lab on campus where we had a Mac two, uh, which mm-hmm. was a, a full fledged desktop with a separate monitor and everything. Yep. Um, and then uh, over the years, I had I went through those. Were they LCs and LCs, LCs, yeah, all those, yeah, quadras, yeah, yeah. quadras, yeah, yeah. And then I, then I eventually got a um, one of the Power Max, like a cheese grater one. It was the seventy one hundred Power Max seventy one hundred. Oh, seventy one hundred. First Power Power PC, yeah, Yeah. PC generation. Yeah. And I gotta admit that one was pretty. Hate to say it, pretty crappy. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. Very crashy, very buggy. Wow. But I did write a, I did write a thesis on that machine using Word five. I think it was Word five. That was. Your problem right there, Microsoft Word. Yeah, oh, that was it was horrible. Of- was it Word five or was it Word six? That was the really, really terrible one. Word four was the one that came on like 40, 40 floppy disks and took for yeah. took forever yeah. to load. Yeah, yeah. Word six was Word six was actually not bad. I think Word four and five were were just and it might have been Word five. Yeah, Word, it, 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 oh my god, I couldn't write more than the page before it crashed. The thing crashed. You know, yeah. After restart, it was just terrible. And so my friends used to say that Macintosh stands for many applications crash if not operating system hangs. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I was in the graphics world, so I wasn't really doing much word processing, and especially not with Word. But mm-hmm. um, I think I used to, I used Microsoft Works. We talked about that before. But mm-hmm. I started on a Mac 2CX with a with a 19 inch monitor, and um, my first personal, the first Mac that Carol and I bought for home was a Mac 2. We bought it secondhand, mm-hmm. and then we had Mac 2s for a while. Then our next Mac was a 6100, which I still have, by the way. That was the first Power PC, and yeah, you know, I, I even put the G3 card in it and you know, updated it when to G3 and all that stuff. And yeah, so, and I, and I had, I went down the laptop route. So I had the, the 140 power book and that was my first uh, portable and yep. went up, went up from there and yeah, been doing it. Ever Actually since. thinking back, uh, 1985 was a little too early. It was probably more like 1987. Yeah. I started in 89. Yeah. This is my yeah. 30th year working on Mac mm. this year. Just, yeah. just passed. Yeah. yeah. Anywho. Um, what did you yeah, use you before got... a Mac for your computer? I didn't have a computer before Mac. Ah, okay. Mac was my first computer. Yeah. I mean, I worked on Xerox systems, um, when I was working for the Ministry of Natural Resources, they had a Xerox system here. And um, so, and I, I did typesetting on it, which it wasn't designed for, but it was the first thing that I ever saw that had, had a daisy wheel printer, but it would actually do kerning, mm-hmm. which was unusual for computers, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I, when I first started in the industry, I was working, you know, on by hand, right? And we used, uh, we bought computers to replace some of the labor-intensive uh, activities we were doing as, as screen printers. Yeah. So, yeah. I, my first, I probably mentioned my, this before, my first computer was an Atari 800, huh. which was... Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, back in the day, people probably, you know, younger people probably don't even know this, but Atari actually made, they weren't just a video game company. They they started as a video game company, but they actually made real computers for a few years there. Yeah, they had that one, they, they made 6800 model Motorola computers. They right? did, right yeah. There. So the one that I had was earlier than that. It was a direct competitor to the to the Apple II. Uh, so it was a 60, 6502 uh, chip. Yeah. Um, that was before the Motorola 68000 chips, which were the, the 68000 chips were the ones where the mouse existed. So the, the Lisa and later the Mac on the Apple side and the Apple, uh, oh, sorry, the Atari, I think it was the 5200 or something, something like that. But those were all, yeah, those were all that, the, sec- the next generation that had, and the Amiga from Commodore was the other one, the, the one that actually really hit. Maybe the Amiga's the one I'm thinking of. Was that the one that had um, like three, that the had three processors or something like that? And they were all named after ladies? Or was that Atari? Maybe. No, the, well, the Atari was groundbreaking because it had a, it had a graphics co-processor or graphics chip yeah, that was unusual so it had the 6502 yeah. which was the cpu but it also had this thing called the antic which was a whole nother chip that just drove the graphics and that's why back in the early days uh even though the apple II was really the leader you know because it was kind of first but the atari had much better graphics so it was much more you know much more popular with hobbyists and game well I, I can't say much more popular but with a certain segment of hobbyists and gamers it was very popular because it had some really amazing graphics capability for the time Still 8-bit yeah. graphics, but way mm. beyond what, say, the Apple II could do. Uh, the Amiga, I, I, I don't know. I what, the Amiga I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, the Amiga was was hugely popular. So the the generation that of Commodore that that uh, sort of competed with the with the ones I'm talking about was like the Commodore 64. Right, uh, yep. But then it was the next generation. The Amiga sort of competed with the Macintosh, but the Macintosh was kind of way better in in general. And those mm. those are all the 68,000 chips, Motorola chips. Right. Yeah. All righty. Um, yeah. So macros are expensive. That's the bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about. That tangent. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Um, all right. I was, so, I was uh, talking to a coworker uh, just this week about the first programming language that we had worked on, and and uh, I think she said it was uh, was C plus plus, which is 
very typical these days. And I told her my first programming language was fill in the blank. Pascal. Algol 60 or Fortran? <laughs> no, basic. Basic. Oh, back, basic. Back in the day, oh. everybody learned basic back then. Do you um, know which flavor of basic when you say that? Because uh, I understand there was a billion. Yeah, there then. were a billion flavors of basic. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It was just a generic basic back then. It's like Tandy basic or something? Definitely wasn't Tandy because Tandy was the TRS, the, the Radio Shack version. Mm-hmm. Um, but I used to run, I ran basic on the you know, Commodore Pat back way back when. That was probably the first computer I ever used. We had one at school uh, and it was it was a really like early, early computer that had um, the the keyboard was kind of this, you know, the, you know, a fo- like a, a phone, well, not a cell phone, but a real, a real phone where yeah. they used to have keys that were like these square little things that you would just push. Yeah, um, yeah. The whole, fun, yeah. yeah, the whole keyboard was like that. Very, very weird um, by today's like standards. Like the old typewriter, like the old plastic typewriters, right? Like, no, it wasn't like a typewriter because it, it was a keypad kind of, kind of feel to it. Like, like where, like with a, like a, um, it's not the one oh. that, that had the molded uh, case that the monitor and the keyboard were all in one sort of thing. The pet, yeah, I think it did. I think it did. Combo yeah. pet, because there's there's a couple of there's a couple of, we have there's a maker fair we go to here and um they have they have like a pet group mm. and they bring out all the old Commodore stuff. Yep, yep. Commodore, yeah. Pet, PET. Punchline of my story though was yeah, that yeah, my yeah. coworker had never heard of Basic. Really? Oh, <laughs> that was wow. kind of like it was kind of sad. Well, it's not very. Con- I'm looking at this keyboard now. It's already, it doesn't look very conducive to typing. It wasn't. It's got like a cassette tape or tape in it for um, for memory right uh yeah so my atari 100 the one the first edition of it was a had a tape drive kind of like the one oh yeah i'm looking at a mm-hmm. picture of a pet right now yeah it had a tape drive pretty much just like that although it was it was kind of standalone uh it wasn't built into the unit so mm-hmm. so those computers had um one of the ways they kept the cost down was they didn't have a monitor and what you do is you'd use your tv with it and it came right, up yeah, come yeah. with a little rf modulator uh that's that was a real name for it uh which was this box that you would plug your your tv remember it wasn't cable back then it was the antenna you'd, you'd connect the antenna and then you'd plug this thing from the computer in and then there'd be a little switch that you could switch back and forth uh to go between watching tv and watching and using your computer so for my from my apple II that i have here i have the small i have the the box that goes on the back of the computer but i'm missing the one that goes on the back of the tv to make the rf modulation thing work yeah. although i don't think i have a cathode ray tube anymore for that i have a couple of old mac monitors i, I still have my original mac monitor that i bought back in 89 but uh, i don't don't have any um, way to do this old kind of old timey computer stuff. Oh well, someday. A picture to our Slack channel of the Atari. I just pasted one. Let no, the Atari 800. That's the oh, one. Okay. That was my first computer. Yeah. yeah, see, that's the keyboard on that is more standard. What I would yeah. think of as as a sort of typewriter right. computer keyboard. So the the Pet was a generation before. Also, this thing. Okay. so the Atari 800 and the, and the Apple II uh, were kind of the same generation. Yeah, but the but the Commodore, the Commodore 64 that, with that sort of pyramid shaped uh, or rhombus shaped um, monitor case. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. That's pretty iconic look, right? Yeah. Yep. That's like the almost like you probably see that on the set of um, war games, you know. Do right. You right. Yeah. Or if you had, if you see some science fiction movie of the day, that's what they thought computers would look like around now. Mm-hmm. All righty. Um, moving on. Um, so I've got a link here for us. It says i devices are finally getting a keyboard key based protection against takeover account takeovers, and this was um, I think we talked about this before. The Yuba key is it Yuba key? Yeah, Yubico. Yubikey is 
one of the competitors out there that does this sort of thing. Yeah, this is a key that's got a US, USB or, or Lightning or USB-C on, on either side. And it, it's basically like an authentication tool, right? Mm. I mean, Yeah, um, this is talking about, they make a lot of references to WebAuthn as being mm-hmm. the sort of the critical piece that was added to Safari or iOS and iPadOS uh, Mac as well, probably. I sort of right, yeah. read some of the pieces here. And it adds for some of the convenience, like the NFC-based keys. There's USB-based keys. There's uh, Lightning based keys that uh, Yubico has. Uh, there's even Bluetooth ones, though. I think those are falling out of favor because they're a little easier to, to crack into. Um, and the basic idea is that you have this other factor that even if somebody stole your password, stole your username, um, they wouldn't be able to do anything at all because they would lack the cryptographic signature that would come out of the key. So is this like, this is a, a, a two-factor authentication kind of tool, right? Like, does that mean that you have to, you'd have to plug it into your USB port whenever you want to use um, that a particular password or something? Yeah, and there's different ones. So like the, the NFC one would presumably, you know, you, you'd tap it against yeah, the phone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's some different versions of keys that, you know, like you, you have to generally press a button on the key to prove that you are sort of actually there and that there isn't some sort of replay attack going on. Uh, I think mm-hmm. some keys even have sort of like a touch ID like factor on there. So even if somebody stole your key and knew your password, they would still also have to have your fingerprint. Um, right. But I, I do think the really cool thing is the integration for WebAuth in as being a really nice, um, I'm not going to say seamless, but certainly an easier way to deal with multi-factor authentication without having the sort of, uh, how should I say this? Without having the security issues that SMS text-based codes can have where, you know, if somebody can get um, a hold of your uh, your phone number by convincing the fine people at Verizon or T-Mobile or AT&T, like, hey, I'm really this person. I lost my phone. Please switch it to this new phone. Uh, you know, and they'll, they'll now have your number, right? So there's that's a huge flaw with the sort of traditional uh, SMS-based 2FA, mm-hmm. uh, two-factor authentication. And it also avoids the sort of weird uncomfortableness that the TOTP, the time-based one-time passwords that like Google Authenticator or Authy use, you generally scan like a little QR code and that sets up this key relationship where, you know, every once, like, every 30 seconds, I think you get a new code. So you go to this website, you put in your username, password, and it's like, cool, what's the six digit number that the authenticator has given you? That can be a little awkward. Whereas this is just take something out from like your key ring, shove it into the port, tap it against the NFC, and you're good to go. You don't have to uh, you worry about, whoops, I mistyped the number. Dang it. It's so close. I have to wait till the 30 seconds is done now until I can get another one because there's no way I'm going to be able to type out this digit in like two seconds, right? So you, you end up with some some usability there. But there still is some awkwardness there because you have to have the key. Like what if yeah. you have the key at home? You can't use your phone kind of thing, you know? I'm yeah, there's there's a, a couple different things that people have done to, to work sort of around this. So um, I think one thing that hasn't been done very well in these um, sort of like user-based demonstrations, like they really should sell these keys in packs of two. You literally should never have only one because you're going to be in a world of hurt if you lose that one, right? It's like you should have yeah, one that you yeah. always have with you and then one that you, you like shoved in your safe deposit box at the bank or something, right? So in the event of your untimely demise or you dropped your pants into the ocean, you at least have some sort of way to get access to your stuff. Yeah, I got to say a couple of things. One is I really have trouble with Bitbucket because like it constantly, it only uses the, the two-factor authentication with the key and, and it, it, I constantly have trouble trying to log 
log into things. I've, fun, I've given up trying to use source treat their own product hmm. with with it. But I got to say that that I've been using one password for my two factor authentication instead of um, uh, Google Authenticator or um, MS Authenticator or Authy because with one password, I mean, and, you know, because I've used all three of them, and and you know, last year I had my phone change hand or change over, and and that gave me like a week or two of constantly running into this problem. It wasn't the same device that I was using before. But um, what one password does, and Ricky mentioned this on when he was on the show, but I, I didn't catch it till till much later. Was and still started using it. So you can scan the barcode into one password and use that as your key generator, right? But what's cool about it is when you go to use it on your Mac, um, you go to you 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 go to you pull up the password. You, it does the auto enter or the um, uh, yeah it automatically enters in the password for you, and it copies the code into memory. So whatever you had in in your your clipboard, it puts it aside, right? Copies this code into memory, and then when the next screen comes up and says what's your your six digit code, you just paste because the code's already in in memory. And then when that exchange is finished, they one password takes the the memory that it put aside and puts it back in your clipboard. So it's a really interesting integration in terms of how they're doing that. So it's like almost like you don't have to like run around to get that. And the other advantage of it being one password is it's not tied down to any one device because you're already a subscriber through their service, right? You can pull it up on your Mac, you can pull it up on your phone, you can pull it up on your iPad, and it's the same using the same, using one password for the uh, the uh, two factor authentication. But I gotta gotta say, I really like the way they did that. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty neat. It's definitely convenient. There, it does change the the risk model, right? And that now one password itself becomes an attack vector. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you're uh, dedicated enough and you want to really get into Beyonce's or Justin Bieber's account, you don't know what one password is, though. You've put everything in one basket there, right? So I, I do like the um, the web auth end part where this is focused. You know, or this article is focused on the physical keys. The other part of WebAuthn is, uh, as a standard, is that you can have um, platform-based keys, uh, such as uh, Touch ID, Face ID, uh, Windows Hello on Windows systems, and the equivalents on on Android systems. Um, The basic way that this works is you can go in and you could even sign up without ever having a password exchanged anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. People are getting really excited about passwordless. It does have issues with, you know, being something that uh, is hard to deal with if you're, it's not an administered sort of project. Like it would make sense if you uh, had your company said, cool, every employee is going to get one of these, you know, physical keys or set up something on their phone or something. And we still have an administrator who has ultimate access, who can unlock things or reset things, I guess, more accurately, reset things for you. Or revoke them. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, oh crap, uh, I dropped in the ocean. Can I have another one, please? Cool. Yeah. We can set this all up. It's not going to work for something like Google or Facebook uh, who, who couldn't do that at scale. But it is pretty neat because it, it basically works. And this is what I put as my uh, my precog follow-up. So I, I had access to the notes and was able to peek. Right. Uh, guide does a really sort of brilliant job of describing how this whole thing works, mm-hmm. where you go in and say, hey, I want to create an account. Web service says, cool, send me a public key. And as part of the WebAuthn standard, your device or browser, in this case, like uh, mobile Safari or desktop Safari, will create a key pair, right? Like a public key, private key pair. Mm-hmm. And we'll give the public key to the web service that you're trying to sign up for as part of the registration. And then the really cool part is when you say, hey, I'd like to sign in. The service will say, cool, here's this randomized bit of data. I need you to sign this crypto 
cryptographically so that we can prove that this came from you. So you'll create your signature with a private key, hand it back over. Like all this is seamless, right? Like the device is doing this for you. It's, it's all part of the registration piece. And then the web services can verify like, yep, I was able to decrypt this randomized bit of data. It's the same bit of data using the private, sorry, the public key that your browser had provided to the service. Mm. So uh, I think the, the best example here would be using something like face ID or touch ID as sort of like your, your, your digital key here, like we were talking about right. where, you know, all of that would be managed by Safari and the iPhone itself. And all you do is you just unlock using face ID or touch ID. Like you normally would, you never have to worry about passing a code or anything because that's all handled for you as part of the standard. Mm. Is there a cost for using this web auth then? Or is it like, uh, cause I, I was using PGP for a while, but that kind of got out of control for a while. No, it, it's a, it's an open standard. And so this is why it requires the sort of the browsers in this case yeah. to, to deal with it because um, one of the other cool things is like you can't, well, <laughs> he says you can't, but bear in mind everything related to Today, security is there's probably a bug somewhere, right? Yeah. Uh, hypothetically, you would not be able to spoof, like if I sent you to Google, you know, G-O-O-G-L-E, you know, if I were able to convince you like, hey, user, type in your username and password, I could steal your credentials. Heck, I could even steal your um, TOTP or SMS-based to a fake code, right? I just have right. to convince you, hey, enter the code, and I'm going to turn around and shove it into to Google's service myself. With WebAuthn, uh, the thing I didn't talk about with the registration is that it is tied to the domain name. So if you had G-O-O-O-O-G-L-E, Google.com, the browser would be like, I don't have a registered public key for this. So sorry, it sucks to be you. And then when you go to actual Google.com, it'll say, oh, cool, we've got a key here. Um, prompt the user for authentication to unlock everything. And everything works sort of seamlessly as I described before. Cool. All right. Yeah, it's it's neat stuff. I'm glad to see it. I don't know um, how this is going to shake out as uh, something. Like I think this article really focuses more on the account takeover scenarios, right? So you're you're talking more like you know banks and government institutions, uh, corporations who really want extra duty security are going to go through the effort of having managed programs to send these out. I don't know what this will mean for sort of the average user. I'm really hoping that the Twitters the Instagrams, the Googles of the world start making this sort of a more common thing for people to use, especially if you can use the um, platform based and like a, you know, another token, like a physical token. It'd be really nice. I guess I wouldn't get away with saying, if not saying this today, but just yesterday in Canada, there's a company called Life Labs, which does, you know, uh, blood work and your analysis and that kind of stuff for, for medical reasons, right? They, they do your, your glucose count and all that kind of stuff and uric acid count in your, your bodily fluids. And they've started about a couple of years ago, they started an online thing where you could go into this life lab, you could enter, your, you know, have your blood test done and you could access your records yourself and you could, you know, because they would normally just go to your doctor and he would tell you you're doing good or bad or whatever, right? But this is sort of handy because you could log in and get your own results and save them PDF and all that kind of stuff. They got hacked yesterday in a cyber attack, right? 15 million accounts huh. got hacked and there's only, what, 33 million people in Canada? So that was, yeah, kind of a big deal speaking <laughs> timely you know like in terms of the story right so that's the news in canada they now they now know what kind of what kind of donut we prefer at tim hortons and, and among other things right so lots of personal information passwords everything got sort of you know let go or released anywho yeah and i think uh, fairly recently here in the u.s um something like fifty thousand facebook employees personal info was leaked out because i think
interviewing somebody from from finance or HR, you know, the kinds of people who would tend to have that information had uh, lost access to that data. I don't know if they lost a laptop or if they lost a, like a hard drive, like an, an external drive or something. But it's really silly, right? Because we just talked about how there are very sort of simple actions you can do, like encrypting the data at rest and making sure yeah. that um, people have you know, the proper authentication tokens and other things that are really hard for somebody else to, to sort of crack and deal with. You know, just having it out in, in, in the open and in plain text and, and having, you know, um, username and password-based only systems is, is kind of silly in the modern era. It's just, uh, it's hard to say it's it's negligent or irresponsible, but it's definitely not a good practice to do those. You definitely want to use the, I, I think it's a common refrain we've had on this podcast, right? You want to use what the platforms give you in terms of, you know, security. So you're not having to worry, like it's almost harder to do it without security in mind if you do what the uh, the platforms want you to do. Yeah, yeah. All right, move on to your next story here, Hami. Yeah, this one I thought was was interesting. Um, this is from the Swift.org forums, mm -hmm. uh, an update from the IBM folks, Ian Partridge and Chris Bailey, who have uh, let the group know that following a review by IBM, it's uh, open source priorities. They are not going to continue work on Swift in 2020. So they're both standing really? down from the work group. And my understanding, uh, looking a little bit into this, is that these folks happen to be really pretty heavily involved in Katura, the server-side Swift framework from uh, right, IBM. Right, yeah. And so it sort of raises a lot of sort of questions like, oh, it, what's going to happen? I mean, it's an open source project, but definitely led by IBM engineers. And I don't know myself. Um, when I think back to some of the sort of other frameworks, like Perfect, I think is still around, but not, not as active. Um, kind of expecting Gatura to be less active. And so it kind of seems like everything's sort of coalescing around uh, Vapor, which as far as I can tell, is still going, going pretty strong. Hmm. Well, I wonder how many people are actually using server-side Swift at all. I mean, it, it got a lot of a lot of buzz when it first came out and there was, there was a lot of interest in it. But do we know whether there's any real, you know, significantly sized projects being done on, on server-side Swift? I don't know. I don't know how we would find that out unless the community talks about it. But, but you know, certainly IBM is a business. They're in, they're in they need to make money off of ultimately off of everything they do. And if they decided that, well, Couture is just not making money because for whatever reason, because not enough people are using it or, or, or whatever, um, you know, that, that could be reason for them to kill it. And yeah, so I, so it makes me wonder in general what the state of server-side Swift is. Anybody know? Yeah, I don't know, but I, I do know, I think people use server-side Swift because they, they feel comfortable with Swift in general, right? Mm -hmm. They think, oh, I can mm -hmm. get into mm -hmm. the server side of things and play around. Because I do hear people writing stuff in, in Swift from time to time on the server side. But, but are they hobby projects or you know, or are they real projects? That's what I wonder. One of our listeners is the, is the developer advocate over at IBM, so I wonder what he he could contribute to this. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, I, I, it's funny because you're right. I, I really, I mean, it's but I mean, think of what they're competing against, right? The 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 server languages that are out there already, right? Um, it's it's kind of it, it, it's it's I think it has a cool factor, and, and yeah, maybe maybe the coolness has worn off a bit, right? Mm -hmm. So because I mean, Apple's not doing it. You know, they're not they're not right. backing it up, and you would think that you know since they're the original champions of Swift in general, right? So the, I wonder. So I mean, do you know if these two guys are how how involved in Swift.org are they, or just they're just a couple of lead engineers that were involved in the project from the get go? I I, I don't I don't know. Uh, maybe folks can uh, reach out to us hashtag AskMTJC if you know more. I got the impression that they're you know we're pretty well involved, like you know a recognizable member uh, members I should say, um, and yeah. I think to Mark's point, like there's, there's no ding on IBM. Like they got to do whatever's in the right interest for their business. Right. And if it, it made sense at one time to have resources on this and now it doesn't, 
I mean, no shame, no harm, no foul. Um, I do wonder, so to, to Mark's point about, you know, what projects are out there, I'm, I'm aware of some sort of that are in the back of my head of people using real stuff out in, in production. Like I want to say the BBC or, or maybe the Guardian has stuff. I know for sure that Capital One has some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that uh, I'm trying to find the right thing. Oh, yeah, there you go. I think we are in, in terms of the hype cycle for server-side Swift, I think we are in the trough of disillusionment. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll find it. I'll see if I can find a good one to, to put in the show notes for those of y'all. But you've probably seen this. And if you haven't, I'll try to describe it. So there's the technology trigger where you know, the technology first comes out, like, you know, server-side Swift. Oh, cool. We can do this thing. And there's this huge peak of inflated expectations. And I'm reading from the graph here. And it goes on people like, oh my gosh, this is so great. Like I can write my mobile app in Swift. And then the back end will also be Swift and everything's hunky dory. And I think now we're in that trough of disillusionment. We're in the peak. We had perfect and uh, Katura and vapor and like Zewo or Zewa. I forget what the, there was like, there's an episode where we talked about like five to seven other server side frameworks that were, that were out there. Right? Yeah. 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 There's one up in new market and yeah. Yeah. And I think now we're in that disillusionment trough, which means we should be coming up on the, the slope of enlightenment and then the plateau of productivity where, you know, there is the server side Swift uh, working group. There's stuff that's really good stuff that's coming out of it, like the uh, the Neo and IO stuff that we talked about an episode or two ago. We, we talked about um, all of these things that you really need to have, you know, a mature ecosystem on the server side, right? The the mm-hmm. logging stuff, the observability um, and alerting mechanisms for like, hey, the, the back end is on fire. Somebody please go fix it. <laughs> and I also think that it, there is a lot of competition out there, right? There is uh, JavaScript, you know, like Node.js, people are using that. And, uh, people are using Python, you know, Django. They're using uh, Golang, Go for, for backend development. There's a lot of different options. Uh, Java is still very much alive and very still weirdly popular, like Spring, for example. Uh, on the other side of uh, like our sibling house is Kotlin, where people are getting really excited. Like, hey, what if we do Kotlin on the server side as well, beyond just our Android app? So I think there's a lot of things going on here where as this stuff matures and as Swift itself becomes more truly um, platform independent. Like you can run it on something more than just Mac OS, mm. um, but it's kind of fairly limited in terms of Linux support right now, particularly around um, is it foundation. I want to say it's foundation that is, they're still like sort of re- uh, rebuilding, right? So that it's not dependent on stuff that's within Mac OS. And as cool as it is to have Mac OS and even some limited Linux support, you kind of also need to support Windows too, right? Like all these other yeah. things I'm talking about, like they're available everywhere. So I'm not surprised that we're not see- seeing more stuff come out. I think we will see uh, contraction of things, refocusing on maybe something like Vapor becomes the, like, yeah, if you're doing server-side Swift, I just assume you're using Vapor. And very soon, hopefully, the working group will have all these other projects of like, yeah, now I can build something legitimate and productionized and not have it be sort of unusual, that it will fit into the other ecosystem of uh, DevOps tools, just like a lot of the other things that I've mentioned here will. So I don't, I don't think this is like doom and gloom. I think this is, in my mind, the, the trough of disillusionment where like... 
people are, you know, jumping off the hype train and now we're going to get into the, okay, here's how this can really truly be used in your environment. You put a link in the show notes for hype cycle, which is what you're talking mm-hmm. about. Interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's funny. Simon Sinek talks about marketing from a, it's a similar kind of, um, more of a bell curve in his his diagram. But yeah, it's interesting that uh, this is how, how hype runs and works. It happens all the time. I remember, you know, Node.js is 10 years old now, I think. And I remember really? when Node.js no. was going to change the world and everything was so great. And, and yet Golang exists. And, and yet, you know, Python has uh, Flask and Pyramid in uh, the Django REST framework and all these other, like, there are still things that are out there that people use and love because it's kind of hard to just have one tool that does it all, right? I mean, not saying you have to get fancy pants like you're going to go have dinner with the queen, but even if you open open up you know, your utensil drawer, I guarantee you, you have more than one kind of tool to eat your food. So not surprised it would have multiple ones to do backend services. But this, but this is true. I mean, we've been talking about this for five years now or six years, five and a half years. Um, you know, any business that you, at some point in time, you have to decide whether or not something is, is worthwhile pursuing. Like, you know, in the case of IBM, if, if Swift isn't, you know, basically driving a big part of their business, they have to sort of evaluate from a cost point of view whether or or not things are things are uh, are worthwhile pursuing. I mean, there's also other decisions being made around around businesses as well. Like you know, like you know, we talked about, you know, when you're a young entre- entrepreneur, you want to take on anything you can, but eventually you have to learn how to say no to things because they'll distract you or they spend too much you spend too much time on them. Um, people are fascinated by by they like Swift, they like the, the the taste of it when when they're working with it for iOS purposes. But are they really server people? Do they ha- are they like you know and and server people have have a different sort of agenda. And different things that drive them and whether or not they swift is the you know the the, the golden child of coding or, or languages um that remains to be seen but like like people will use it for a while and then think it's cool but then you know they'll they'll in the cold harsh reality of of the working world uh, it comes down to where you're making your money and and whether you can sustain you know that kind of thing like we talk about this at work all the time when some new cool tool comes along or some new language comes along or some new method methodology or framework comes along and the question is not so much, oh yeah, it's really cool that you want to do this for your POC, but if the rest of us 40 developers have to support it, you know, once the, once it goes into a feature, we all have to then tool up on that particular thing. Like that was, you know, adopting Swift was a challenge for, for a lot of companies too, right? Because coming from Objective-C, the, you know, the language we knew and having to learn this new thing is is challenging. So um, I would say that's happening right now with Swift UI. Yeah, Swift, I, was, I think I was just looking at the chart here that I think Swift UI is, and this is what Simon Sinek was saying, like, you know, when you say, oh, I've got 10% adoption rate, well, you can fall out of bed and get 10% adoption, according to Simon Sinek, because the early adopters and all the, you know, champions of, of the language will be all there at the very beginning. And if you look at this this uh, hype cycle diagram um, in the Wikipedia article I've got here, if, it, the, if you expand the, the, the one that's got all the details on it, we're kind of sort of at the early adopters investigating, you know, the mass media hype hasn't started yet. I mean, Apple did do a rollout at, at WWDC, but we're, no, we're not, we're just, the roller coaster's still traveling uphill, right? Um, we haven't got to the point where um, people beyond, you know, myself or Paul Hudson or, or you know, like a handful of developers are, are actually trying it. I can tell you that at where I work, there maybe are two or three people looking at SwiftUI 
Android right now as out of, you know, a large majority of developers, right? Yep. I am looking um, at it right now at work as well. Yeah. So, and the, and the rest of the group is kind of like, well, wait and see, let's see what Mark can do with it, right? Exactly. Kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, then like it says here, negative press begins and, you know, once, once people start bashing uh, SwiftUI after, after it gets beyond the early adopters, it'll go down into the trough of disillusionment as well, yeah. right? And that, that could happen before the next WWDC, who knows, right? I personally think that we are looking at the same chart. We are at that very top where it says activity beyond early adopters. You think we're there already? I, I don't think, I think so yet. because the, the fact that, that I'm actually using this at work oh, uh, yeah. is, an, is an indication of that because I, if we were still that early on, I wouldn't be doing that. But we're actually right now, I'm actively exploring whether whether this is something that we do want to use in the near future. Mm, right, yeah. And, and you know, my conclusion, I, I, I have to say, is that, well, maybe for simple stuff, but it may not be quite ready for prime time yet. To me, it's kind of like template. I think of, I, I feel, sort of get the feeling, I, I like SwiftUI, don't get me wrong, but yep. I kind of get the feeling it's like templated websites. So like, you know, I use WordPress a lot now when I'm, when I'm doing uh, websites, you know, because I used to build them all by hand. I used to write every line of code and every everything in BB Edit, and I would make my own graphics and stuff. And for the last five or six years, I've just been cranking out another WordPress site. And um, for a while there, I was building my own templates, and I can write my templates from scratch too. But you know, for for ninety nine point nine percent of the market out there, there's a WordPress template already for you, right? Um, and you can teach someone who doesn't, who's not a coder, how to how to customize a website in, in no time. And to me, that's what SwiftUI feels like. It's like it's simple enough that your mom could put together an app. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be like, you know, Facebook or, or, you know, it doesn't have to calculate your taxes and stuff like that. But for someone to put together, you know, a small informational piece and, and, and look and not have to worry about all that, that monkey business that we did with, with auto layout for the last few years. Right. And that's all sort of done for you. That's where I see SwiftUI having a, having a big play. Things like the watch app, right? Like a watch app. There's not a lot of room to do stuff. Right. So SwiftUI lends itself to watch apps really well, you know, uh, as stack views did initially when, when the watch app which watchOS first came out, right? Yeah, I, I think I think SwiftUI, from everything that I can tell, feels a lot like either Swift 1.0 or yeah. yep. um, possibly the iOS 6 initial release of Auto Layout, where it's like, wow, this is cool stuff. It works for some things, but it is kind of horribly wanting and lacking for uh, many, many use cases. So I, I'm hoping that they sort of stay the course on this and that SwiftUI 2.0 has a lot of the things filled in that we've mentioned or missing. Like, it'd be cool to have a collection view. It'd be cool to have this. It'd be nice yeah. to have that. Well, will, will it become like, what are those those graphics tools that, that uh, they have the kids working on right now that you don't have to know how to code? You know, the, the simple languages where you just drag and drop things onto the screen? Yeah, I think it won't be like that because of the, the, the data model. The data model is so different uh, and the architecture that they're, they're, you can't really think of it as an MVC anymore or mm-hmm. or a derivative of MVC, like, you know, like a Viper or something like that, just because there are so many things different. Like, for example, there's no concept of a router, uh, mm-hmm. which in regular MVC terms is there's no concept of presenting a view controller or pushing a view controller onto a nav stack kind of, right. that, that kind of thing. It, it doesn't really exist because all the layouts are state 
driven. So if you want to, for example, I mean, there, there are equivalents to those things, but, but they don't work in the same way where you can just instantiate the view that you want to push or the view controller that you want to push and you know, programmatically just push it anytime you want. No, that it doesn't work that way because this, the views are completely state driven, which means that you have to come up with every possible state that your UI might have for a particular screen, let's say. And that includes all of the things that you might present on that screen. So if you want to push a, uh, if you want to have present a, a modal, for example, well, you have a property on your content view, for example, uh, called dot mobile, uh, sorry, dot modal with a state variable that says should show this modal. And if that's true, then when it renders the layout, it renders that modal. So you have to put the modal into your the parent view, which is a very, very different approach than the hierarchical uh, uh, you know, type of approach that we've used in, in standard UI kit. So mm-hmm. it's it's hard for me to see beyond certain, beyond simple cases, it's hard for me to see doing like a hybrid approach where you have part of your app. Well, I mean, you could you could completely silo the Swift UI pieces of your app and do it that way. But but then, you know, getting the data in and out is is kind of, is, is complicated. That's one of the things I wrestle with a lot is is just wrapping my brain around this completely different way of dealing with, with just data access. All right, right. All right. Okay. Well, let's, um, we'll probably come back to this, this argument a bit more. But, yeah. um, Jaime, you want to jump into your, uh, I think this is the next one is a quick hit, right? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the hype cycle. Get hyped about savings. If you're, if you're all in on, if you're all in on Apple Arcade, instead of paying $4.99 a month, you can pay upfront $49.99 per year, and right. that'll be a $10 savings there. Yeah, that seems to be pretty common. That's that's sort of the large popcorn price these days, right? Where um, you have a, like a monthly price of something, and then for you pay 10 months instead of 12 months or 12 individual months, right? That seems to be a common sales tactic these days, right? Yeah, and I think it makes sense depending on what you're, you're doing, right? Like if you're like, well, I'm not sure. It's like, like myself, I, I think I'll wait a little bit and then I'll probably do a one month free trial, see how it is. And then maybe I will go say, yep, yeah, I could totally see getting, you know, $50 worth of use out of this out of, out of the year and then just signing up for the whole year. And if not, if I'm like, eh, I don't know, let me do a couple months here, see how it is. That seems like a pretty flexible way too. Yeah. At the end of the day, 50 bucks a year is not, not a bad price anyway, right? Um, yeah. It, it definitely depends on the kinds of games that you're looking to, to play. Um, I think it will definitely depend on whether you get really, really into maybe a handful of games that are out there right yeah. now. Or yeah. uh, the other thing is I think it will also depend on how the release cycle goes for Apple, making sure that they continuously have new cool stuff for people to play. Yeah, well, when you consider that, uh, you know, the price of a, a title on PlayStation or, or Microsoft uh, Xbox kind of stuff is, um, you know, $60, $70 a title, you know, it, it's less than the price of a game. And what does a game cost? What is it, what is a, you know, like a decent game on PlayStation cost in, in the States? Yeah, you're right. It's uh, for like a AAA title, it'd be $59.99 US. Let's call it sixty bucks versus the the fifty dollar yearly subscription for, for Apple Arcade. So, continuing the theme of reading between the lines of, of what does this really mean? Do we think that this is a reaction from Apple's part up to not having enough subscribers to Arcade, or was this part of the rollout strategy all along? You know, put it out for the early adopters and then drop the price a little bit in as things start to dip a little bit, or is it a just a holiday thing where they're trying to lock people in when people are in a spending mood? What do you think? Yeah, it could be, could be that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it could be like it. It plays better, I think, to have the news stuff for the launch be four ninety nine a month versus the you know sixty dollars a year, which I think maybe some outlets talked about, or 
even a cheaper per month, you know, $49.99 a year. Sounds like Apple has a, you know, charging you $50 a year for service is like, oh, that's a sucky headline, right? I want $4.99, you know, the the, the price of a, a pretty typical Starbucks order, right? Um, I think that sells well. And then the $49.99 a year thing to me feels like that's a really good way to smooth out some of that revenue cycle. So you, as far as I know, I think you pay all up front. It's not like you're paying less per month um, every month. So they get that money up front, you know, they can put it in their, you know, savings plans or a CD or something, I guess, if they really wanted to. Um, but I think they can more likely have funds up front that they can just turn and reinvest into paying for other studios to create more content. So I view it as more of a revenue smoother than it is. And it basically, they're, they're lock, locking you into $50 for an entire year, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Versus like, well, looks like uh, X million of people are using it this month. Will they stay for next month? Who knows? You know, cross your fingers. Hopefully they will. Yeah, well, it's locking them in too, which I think is a, is a safe bet for, from a business point of view, right? Like they get your 50 bucks. So if they only got you for three months, like they only had me for a month or not even th- or three weeks, I think until I dropped, right? Um, you know, if that, so if they had, if they had, you know, had me at 50 bucks, I would have, even if I'd never played it for 10 months of the year, you know, uh, they would still have my money, right? Yeah. I, I do think it is a good data point though, um, sort of to, to Mark's point here of, you know, if they drop it again, you know, three months from now, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, that's like, a that's not a good sign. Yeah. Right. When it becomes a Groupon, then we'll worry, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now it's twenty nine ninety. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold on, that sounds like the usage must not be that good, and you're desperately clawing for whatever you can. All right. Well, we started out the um, the episode or discussion today whether whether or not this is in fact the end of a decade or not, and um, I think we've, we've agreed that it's not uh, the end of the decade until next year, but of the actual decade that is. That is. Uh, there was an article this week. Um, Walt Mossberg came out of retirement to talk about the last ten years of Apple. Um, in an article, which I'll link in the show notes, and uh, Rene Ritchie um, on, ve- on his Vector uh, vlog, I guess you call it, um, he um, he did a 10-year summary. So I've taken notes from his his thing, and I just want to play a, a little bit of rapid fire with you guys um, on, on the things that Apple has done in the last 10 years or been involved in the last 10 years. And it's a surprisingly long list. So if you guys are ready, we can just whip through this stuff, right? So the first thing on the, the list is the iPad, which uh, I mentioned earlier in the show or earlier in the day is that this is what started me in iOS development, right? The announcement of the iPad, because I come from a publishing background and that made a perfect sense to me. So so let's just do, let's do this. So quickly, iPad, what do you think? What, what does it mean to you, I mean, Mark? I don't think I quite got the context. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got like, I've got like 50 things to yeah. throw you guys to get like a one, like a one or two sentence comment out of. So how about, or I'll just go through it and you guys can just jump in and, and say what you, what do you think about it? What do you think? I'm going to list off 50 things that Apple's been involved in the last year or so. The last 10 years. Sure. You can get us rolling with an example. I think I'll do a better job of... All right. So well, the iPad for me, like I said, the iPad for me was the starter. got me into iOS development. How about the iPhone 4? Okay, for I'll me, the ahead. iPhone 4 doesn't mean a whole lot because I came on board in the iPhone 4S. So iPhone 4 for me, I was at the I was at the WWDC uh, keynote where Steve Jobs, you know, had to chastise us because they had two devices on stage and he couldn't get enough bandwidth because everybody had brought MiFi um, devices and were chewing up all the bandwidth, bandwidth in the room. And he told us all to close our, our laptops and turn off our phones and just, you know, so he could do his iPhone 4 demo. That was also the one that had the, you were holding it wrong because mm. it had the, the weird antenna, right? So it, it, in that same keynote, uh, I bought my first Apple shares at the end of that keynote because I was so impressed by it. And I've had those shares ever since. 
I bought my first shares at, uh, on the day that the iPhone shipped in, two, in 2007. Mm. Um, I sort of have the I have half of those shares. Um, FaceTime also came out then. Not really meaningful for me. I don't I don't use it very much actually. They also brought out the iPod Shuffle, which was the little tiny shuffle, right? And the mul- the first multi-touch shuffle. So they they taken the technology from the phone and moved it over to Shuffle, an iPod. Um, Lion introduced back to my Mac. Yeah, Lion is is meaningful for me because that was the first operating system that I upgraded to. So if folks remember when I've described my background, I started out on uh, Snow Leopard, I want to say, which was on these uh, dusty old um, MacBook Pros, I want to say, that IT pulled out of the closet for us so we could we'd try using them. And I upgraded to Lion because it was newly available that then. So yeah, Lion also was the I first operating. correctly that it was the first one that was free? It I was think free, it was because yeah. I don't yeah. remember paying for it. Yeah. yeah and and it, only, it was only available through the Apple Store, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I think I have a, th- a thumb drive somewhere that came with one of my computers that had Lion on it as yeah. well. So, yeah, that was when they stopped, stopped sending out uh, DVDs, which is another reason why they can make it free too, right? That was also around that, the next thing was the MacBook Air got released in the list. So MacBook Air, I've had a MacBook Air since day one and I love them. How about Apple TV 2 introduced by Steve Jobs? I mean, it was something I used on a fairly regular basis at the office, even though I've not yeah. owned one. Yeah, yeah. Apple Park was introduced next in the history of things. Made my commute pretty bad for a while. Sorry? It made my commute pretty bad for a while. <laughs> well, this is, this, yeah, but this is, this is the announcement of it. When he went to the went to the Cupertino Town the office and, and argued for it and presented designs. Hmm. Around that time, Siri came out as well. Yeah, Siri is, has been a bit of a letdown, I would say, over time. Just doesn't. It, it's, it's definitely not matched the uh, initial hype. But for me, I think if you follow the sort of the, uh, the, the coaching list, Lineage that has meant that I now have the Amazon Echo. I do have the HomePod, of course, and the Google Home that I use on a on a daily basis. I use all three. So it, it even if it itself has not sort of done what I think sort of the the hype and promise was back in uh, 2011, it definitely has created like a whole industry and a whole different product category that that came out because it existed. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Also in 2011 in October, we lost Steve Jobs. Yeah. I should mention too that the 2014, when that first keynote with Steve Jobs was the first WWDC I attended. Um, so shortly after the, the next uh, WWDC, uh, well, it was actually before Steve Jobs left us, I guess, um, the MacBook Pro Retina was introduced, the 15-inch. Yeah, it's pretty meaningful because that's what I'm podcasting from on this very device that is seeing its age, and it's uh, it's going to go live in a farm upstate pretty soon here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, do you remember the Maps fiasco introduced sure. by Scott Forstall? Yeah, I do remember... Um, I remember not trusting Maps because it would do weird, th- especially early on, would do weird things. And I remember um, being very, very thankful when the Google Maps app came out as a third party app. And I would use the Google Maps app for, like, I have to get there at a very specific time. And I know this will do the job, uh, especially if I was in a location that I didn't know too well, like other cities. But I continued because of the the integration with things like Siri. Um, it was so much... And, and, you know, integration with calendar and stuff. It was so much easier to use Apple Maps for like, I, I I know the area, like I know my city. So if it's clearly taking me the wrong way, I'll just ignore it, but it can help me navigate around, right? Get me to the right. final location. Even if it's like, all right, if it's clearly taking me the wrong direction, I'm going to just ignore it until it figures out the right path. Right, right. That, that was, a, I think I have a screenshot somewhere of, of, there was a case where if you looked up a park in Australia, it took you to the wrong place. And, and it took people down this, this back road that where there was no 
several gas stations and stuff like that, and a huge fiasco for them. That was also the year, I think this was the iPhone 5, we got the lightning connector. Yeah, I think for me, that meant that I suddenly had a whole bunch of adapters, dongles, you might say, for my um, my 30-pin uh, device cords to, to connect in, like, my, um, you know, at home, at my desk at work. I think I kept one in my car, too. Yeah, yeah. I've talked Slowly but surely, of those cables are starting to die, and now the connector is sort of like the, the dongle connector is not really that important. It's it's all lightning connectors for me now, which has me sort of twitchy about the uh, the rumors of switching to USB-C, because as cool as it is to have a singular um, sort of port, the, the USB-C cable industry is a, is a total mess. Right. So that was also the year that iPad mini came out, my favorite so iPad. Do you, do you guys remember, if, did that have a lightning connector? It must have, right? It must have, yeah. yeah. So the first one, I, I, I think, well... Oh, it might have had the, yeah, it might have had the no. wide, the wide connector. Forgot about yeah. those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I it was basically an iPad two in a smaller form factor, right? Mm-hmm. So shortly after that time, we lost Scott Forstall because he he resigned from Apple over not wanting to apologize, apparently. <laughs> and uh, at the next WWDC, um, Craig Federici announced that there would be no more cat names, and I think they named the first. Uh, what was the first one called? Um, not a cat. Uh, was it a wave or something like that, right? Was it was Maverick it? or Yosemite? No, I think it was Maverick. Yeah, it was a wave wave place wave. Yeah. Yeah. surfing place. I think what it's meant for me when they've changed these names is I actually find it a lot more difficult to remember the order mm. weirdly enough than I yeah. do the cats. Yeah. It would be Mavericks actually is this is the surfer name, surfing place name. Mavericks. Mavericks. Ah, yeah. there we go. Mavericks. There we go. So, um, what's the name? Phil Schiller, right? He famously said Apple can't innovate my ass when he introduced yeah. the Mac Pro. A bit of irony there. Can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mac Pro trash can. That was also the year that gave us iOS 7. This would be 20 16, I think, right? Yeah. And they introduced a new product as well. Um, Eddie Q introduced iOS in the car. Do you remember that? I do remember that being talked about, but I don't think I've ever used that until many years later. iOS in the car? Well, it became CarPlay, right? Yeah, yeah. When, when it actually became CarPlay is when I actually used it. I don't think I'd ever used iOS in the car. Yeah, no, no. It was, so I guess it's did, more of a... Did they uh, actually ever ship it or thing? did they just announce it until, they until it became CarPlay? It. They may have announced it. I, yeah. I, I recall I was at that WDC too, and I, I recall there was a car in the lobby and you could go sit in the car and yeah. well, do the, iOS the things. The product cycles on, I mean, if you think the product cycles are, are long for you know some of the stuff that we work on, mm-hmm. you know, a car product cycle is, is years and years and years. Uh, so when they when they put something, some kind of electronics in the car, it takes a long time to get it in there. So they were probably working on it for years before they actually before you actually saw it in a car. So they might have made that final marketing decision to call it CarPlay towards the end. And iOS in the car might have been the name, the working name for years before that, for all we know. Right. Right, right, and that was also the year that they introduced, or I guess around that time, or the next thing on the list, I should say, is the is the iPhone 5C and the iPhone 5S bringing back the multicolored phones again. Yeah, multicolored phones, or, or, or for the first time, for cheap. Yeah, it's <laughs> that color. was the A. Yeah, color. Yes, yeah, of course. I, yeah. I was being I was being facetious, Mark. And that, that was the first A7 chip as well, which is the first 64-bit chip that Apple created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that also brought uh, in the era of Touch ID. If you Touch remember. ID was a pretty big game changer, actually. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Angela Aarons joined Apple to run the Apple stores because I think the guy who was running retail left at the same time as Scott Sporstall. Um, and that was the year, I think, around that time, Beats joined as well with Dr. Dre, right? Yeah. I, mean, and, I guess, uh, I guess, I have as well. I guess you could say that Apple Music came out of that, but it is? didn't it? Mm, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Sure Even Apple if not was. directly, like yeah. code base or, or anything, it's certainly. 
certainly the philosophies that that beats right right sort of right. brought to the table is right i'd say is definitely the progenitor for apple music which is meaningful to me because i'm i'm a monthly subscriber they're getting my 10 bucks a month but i do have to say the headphones themselves i don't know um yeah. i mean unless they well i guess i suppose the airpod technology might have maybe came out of that maybe i don't know possibly it, it might have gotten apple really interested in well what do we do with um you know wearable stuff yep. related to, yep. to music yep. I, I, I could see that I, i've never owned beats stuff because it's it's really not super inclusive see what i need for people like myself with my hairstyle you need to have an option to have wrap around the uh. behind the back of the head <laughs> headphones like i still want right. you know not buds being very clear i want you know over the ear headphones that i can have going behind my head it's or, mess up my or what, hair. If, what if it had a like a, a large bump in the center of the of the wraparound of the piece that goes on top of your head so you could have it go over your hair i uh, could see mind. that but i'm kind of curious how that would <laughs> not fall on based to gravity unless it had some yeah. sort of like like little um vice or you know thumb screws that i have to like frankenstein into my temples mm, mm. to to have you know something to hang on to the side of my head so it doesn't fall off you gotta do what you gotta do for fashion man (laughs) (laughs) a lot of people i know that use beats wear them backward over the back of their head Mm. um so the next year gave us continuity and home kit and metal and swift swift is definitely meaningful as the you know having to to unlearn what i had learned before yeah but yet still having you know familiar uh familiar surroundings so it wasn't like i was completely lost as to what to do so that was that you're like your third year into ios or uh swift in 2014 yeah although i i really really wouldn't use it you know beyond the oh i'm trying out the tutorials from ray wenderlicker oh right. I'm, i yeah. followed along with the example from wwdc i really wouldn't start using it like for realsies as a professional until 2016 so right it was my fifth year as an ios developer uh-huh. so this isn't really from apple but more than just code podcast started shortly after that no comment <laughs> 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 no, I, I kid, I kid. It's obviously been super, super meaningful, um, you know, uh, meeting and getting to know you, know you guys here on the show and people who are, uh, you know, not on the show right now, but may or may not be listening. Uh, the fans, of course, mm-hmm. the listeners. Those of you driving at home. Yeah, those of you driving at home. All right. And just so you know, we're like a third of the way through the list. Yeah, maybe um, we should speed it up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So iPhone 6 Plus came out the next year. What about I think the 6? We, we skipped the 6. Well, the 6 and the 6 Plus came out the same year, right? So, but the plus was the oh, first okay. mega phone, right? Yeah, that was that when was I got the, touch ID the large, the large size phones. Yeah, that mm-hmm, was a big mm-hmm. deal. That's when I learned what, what true battery life meant. Yeah. And we talked about this new thing called Apple Pay. Apple Pay has been awesome. Yeah. Huge yeah. fan yeah. of super that. Super good. Super good. I use it as, as much as I can. Mm-hmm. We had Bendgate. <laughs> Did, didn't impact me. Um, I don't know. It. I did buy Apple Care for my phone because of it. It did make me super paranoid about bending yeah. the damn thing, even though I was probably saying on this very show that I didn't think it was too likely. It did scare me irrationally. We also got the Retina 5K display, which Mark was chomping for, but but that was on the iMac though, right? It wasn't an actual standalone display. That's right. That's right. You got research research kit next. Yeah, that was and, kind of a nothing. And I, I, I guess I've indirectly used that um, in some of the, the research study stuff that, that you'll probably talk about later. So the MacBook came out next, which is the little tiny, uh, the new the new thin, you know, almost air-like MacBook, right? With the one, one uh, USB port on it. A USB-C, I think, came out of that one too, right? Um, but it also introduced the butterfly switch. 
I think that ended up having the, the, the impact for me is that it made me very twitchy and scared about buying mm-hmm. a new MacBook Pro um, when those butterfly switches moved over to the Pro line. Yeah. Um, um, and it, it is a big reason why I'm just driving this current Retina MacBook Pro into the ground. I don't have Apple Watch on, on the... Uh, Apple Watch must have come around before the, around that time too, right? Because we came out at an odd time of year. It came up by... They had that uh, event in October, if you remember, right? Mm-hmm. We we talked about it in episode one, I think, of this podcast. Oh, did we? Okay, yeah, yeah. I, so, or, or, or episode two, possibly. It's very, very early on. Okay, yeah, as, as a coming product. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. That was around the time when Apple Music came out, Mark, just after around the same time as the MacBook, mm-hmm. uh, 2015. Apple Music was in it. And the iPad Pro with the Apple Pencil, which I ran out and bought on day one because it was there and it was shiny. <laughs> I still have my iPad Pro I bought that year. Um, and Apple TV came out with the apps, so the uh, third-generation Apple TV right with the developer kit yeah i've I've never had one and i feel kind of (laughs) bummed that i didn't join the oh it only costs like a dollar developer kit and i'm extra bummed that i didn't get one for free at Mm. the uh wwdc that year when it was very clear that that's what they intended to do no i didn't get oh that was so that must have been the first year i didn't get into wwdc okay care kit came out that year too and the iphone se i think the se's been even though i've not been a uh, personal user that for a while that was pretty meaningful to me because those were sort of little, um, you know, like drag racers in mm-hmm. terms of their, their capability. They had super high internal specs and a, you know, pretty small screen. So it wasn't taxing the CPU, GPU at all. All right. Mac OS got its name that year. And Wait, what was it called before? Mac OS 10. Yeah, I guess they right. dropped Ma- 10, didn't they? Yeah, and they just, yeah, well, the, yeah they just, because they had, they had iOS and Mac OS, watch yeah. OS. And, okay. Yeah, Mac OS. And TV OS. Yeah. TV OS, yeah. Uh, Swift Playgrounds came out. Yep. Shortly thereafter, on yep. the iPad. Yeah. Right. Well, that was originally on the on the Mac, right? And then the, was that the Mac or the iPad version? No, Swift Playgrounds is 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 what what they, they call Playgrounds on Xcode, right? Right. But they call it Swift Playgrounds on the iPad. Oh, okay. Yeah, specifically, right? Yeah. Um, and that was around the iPad Pro. I want to see. Yeah, maybe the year after. So iPod AirPods came out that year. Yeah. No effect and for me because I can't wear them. Yeah. And <laughs> we also got APFS, mm-hmm. which is a new file Good system under the hood and, technology. Yeah. And then uh, they came out with the. 18-core Xeon iMac Pro, which is a big, big deal. Yeah, yeah. I, I increment to the trash can, I guess, right? No, no, no that was um, the iMac Pro. Oh, iMac Pro. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we were discussing last week about the word Pro, and it seems to me, other than the iPads, they use the word Pro whenever it's a Xeon processor as opposed to an Intel, like a like a i, I, I7 or i9. Yeah, for the desktops, they do kind of imply that it's server-grade with Xeons, but, right. but the MacBook Pro for sure doesn't follow that. No, no. That's true. Or the iPad, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the year, so Coromel, that was 20... That, that was probably 2017. Yeah, Coromel, big, big uh, uh, move forward. Although, you know, Apple didn't develop that one internally. That was, that mm-hmm. came out of the acquisition. The, the uh, was it Turi? Is that what it, what it was called? Yeah, I think yeah. so, yeah. Yeah. But still, you know, Apple making a move into machine learning is was a big thing. And we got ARKit as well. Very closely tied to that, machine yeah. learning stuff. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Jaime's not here to talk about AirPod, HomePod. Yeah, but I have one too, and I enjoy it a lot. <laughs> Uh, the more time that goes by, the more it looks like it was just a one-off thing. They just decided to make it speaker. Um, sure, it wasn't yeah. part of any bigger strategy, but it's a really good speaker. Well, no, it has Siri integration, in, but you don't you don't use it that way, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was when they started talking about the car as well. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's when. Uh, and so, speaking of your really bad commute, um, Steve Jobs Theater was opened uh, the next year because yeah, okay. they had uh, an event there. Yeah, and that's when. And after that, we got the Apple Watch Three with the cellular yeah. capability. 
movie. Still kind of an incremental release. I would say the four was the one that really the became one, yeah, the usable yeah. product. Yeah. And they came out with the Apple four Apple TV four K. Also sort of incremental, I think. Yeah. And uh iPhone ten. Was iPhone ten twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen? Uh twenty 20- 17. 17, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big one. That was a big one. Face ID. Yeah, uh, Face ID came with that. All new gestures. And your favorite product of all time. Which one? AirPower? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not just Air mine. Power. <laughs> AirPower was announced. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then shortly thereafter, like I guess a few months after that came out, um, we got uh, the, the cons- conspiracy about slowing down iPhones. That yeah. came out around that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, the, the, and then this, this is the other one is that some Google AI dude joined. I just wrote Google AI. Yeah. Yep. Dude, I didn't catch his name. He joined from Google. That was momentous at the time, but it was kind of just the beginning of, of from what I could tell, a lot of AI hiring over mm-hmm. at Google. So I, I know several people. Apple. In the, no, no, yeah, I mean, I mean at Apple. Came, Sorry, at Apple. I know several yeah. people in the area uh, who are you know AI, uh, who are machine learning data scientist types that mm-hmm. got uh, all hired or hired by Apple in really? the past couple wow. of years. Yeah. So, yeah. So it seemed like a concerted effort. Um, around uh, shortly after that, I think I think it was a kind of March event. They introduced Classroom, which was the multi-user uh, experience for iPads. And um, we had the, what was it called, Workflow before, but uh, in, in the, the 2018, they acquired Shortcuts, mm-hmm. or called it Shortcuts in, in the app. No, and they, that was when we got the Series 4 watch, what you were They made, a, they made about. a really big deal about Shortcuts. Has it lived up to the hype? Well, it does. It does. If you think about it, like, I don't know about you, but I pull down on my, my top, from the top of my phone all the time to do searches, and there's always suggestions there. I do use Shortcuts on a fairly frequent basis, not as often as I used to, but I, I do see it there. Like yeah. it, it does show up, okay. right? Yeah, um, I, I think I have not used um, a ton of like you know bespoke ones that I've mm-hmm. created, um, but I have ended up using the suggested stuff that comes up very similar. Like yeah, Tim talks right. when I'm like searching, I was like, oh, send a message to so and so. Like, yes, that's actually what I wanted to do. Thank you very much. Right, right. Uh, that's when we got the Series Four watch that Mark was just talking about with the EKG or ECG as you guys call it down there. And um, so I guess a few months after. WWDC, uh, Tim Cook went and did a speech about uh, asking for a federate or like a federally sponsored privacy bill in the U.S. for movement, right? Was that after the San Bernardino shooting when they tried to get Apple to unlock the phone? Was that yeah, related to that? Yeah, it might have that? been that. You mentioned yeah. that. I hadn't put that on the list. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Mac Mini came out, then the revamped Mac Mini. I guess it was the next WWDC, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they introduced Today at Apple, which is the events that they hold in the, uh, the stores. Do they still do business. those? They, you know, it's, speaking of Today at Apple, I mentioned last on last week's show that they had stopped doing all the Today at Apple's um, at the Eaton Center in Toronto on the 6th of December. And uh, just this last Saturday, they they, re, they had the grand opening of the new Apple store in Toronto. Um, and it's huge. It's like twice as wide as, as it was. It's about as wide as the, as the store in Palo Alto, Mark. Hmm, okay, that's pretty yeah, good. And yeah. maybe as deep, right? Yep. However, to me, it, it looks a little sparse. But, you know, I'm, I'm used to, you know, being in a cramped uh, Apple store. At least you can move around and not as... It, it's probably just as many people as were there before, but uh, it, it was getting bad because this, you know, the, the 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 genius bar had sort of spread halfway through the store, right? So when people getting their phones and stuff fixed, right? Yes, I don't know what I saw at uh, the Apple Store recently. I don't know if it's the Today at Apple or if it's other thing, but the thing I definitely did see was uh, an Apple employee um, demonstrating um, AR capabilities of some sort mm-hmm. to kids and uh, families, I guess. It was 10 people probably there, you know, adults and children, and they had it. They had the iPhone hooked up to a big monitor on the wall, and then they were like videoing somebody's kid dancing in 
then they showed this like AR effect going around them. So I don't know what that was. I don't know if that was the today at Apple thing. I don't know if it's some, some new sort of class of like, here's cool things you can do with iPhone videography. No idea, but they, they're very clearly doing something. It didn't seem like a one-off event. Yeah. Well, they were, they were, when I was at the Apple store, they were, they have a big, you know, one of those big LCD screens at the back of the store. Um, and there was a guy doing a demo on GarageBand loops, which are cool. I came, I played with them just before the, uh, thing, but nobody was really paying attention to him, but it was like on Sunday, second day or Monday, actually Monday after, after work went up. So after that, uh, uh, I guess 2018, we got the new iPad Pro with the Pencil 2, I'm calling it. Yeah, um, and had and with Face ID for the first time. Oh, Face ID, that's yeah. true, yeah. Um, that was also around that time that the Apple had their first sort of shortfall in, in iPhone sales, mainly in China. Right. Where they uh, didn't do great. That's right. Customers. Apple was doomed and going out of business that year, wasn't weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So much so that Angela <laughs> Aaron's left, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> um, they rolled the Apple News Plus back then, and... And um, was it this year that they announced Apple Card? Yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah. So, so we're into this year. We're into 2019. Mm-hmm. There's Apple mm-hmm. Arcade, which we've talked about. Apple TV Plus, which we've talked about. I'm calling yeah, it. Yeah, I think the Apple Card has meant that uh, I get to feel like some sort of celebrity or rock star with the weirdo credit card that people aren't used to seeing yeah. and people like don't know yeah. how to use it. It has been inconvenient. I have tried staying, um, paying for like a, a hotel. Mm. They were like, uh, this doesn't have numbers. I'm like, it's a legit card. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me. It, yeah. Just put it in the damn machine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Why do you need to make like, you know, the old chink sort of physical copies? It's obviously not going to work for that. Yeah, right, right. That's funny. I forgot about that chink. Yeah, I've had people in a way. Yeah, I've, I have people look at it and just kind of turn it around and not, not kind of not know what to do with it. And then I've had other people look at me and be like, "This is usually when I'm not local. If I'm traveling somewhere, they'll look at it and, and say, or look at me and say, do you work at Apple?' When they when they see the the card. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Um, so we got Apple TV Plus. Uh, I'm calling this keyboard gate when we got the big uh, fur over the rising, you know, foam mount over the keyboard. Um, I guess with the promise of a new keyboard coming out. Uh, they uh, christened iPad OS. This mm-hmm. is this is what I'm looking forward to because, uh, you know, the, the this year wasn't much more than a new name. Yes, it has some new features like the, the multi-window thing that is kind of cool. Um, but it's still, I mean, it's it's still the same code base, right? You run same iOS and iPadOS code base. So I'm interested to see where this where this goes next year. If they're really going to do anything different, or is it just a marketing branding? Well, it does have the dock and it does have the pin, the drag and drop stuff, which is which is uh, yeah. different than yeah. other experiences, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you still write the same code to run on your phone or your iPad. Oh, same you know they're going to branch away from that, yeah. Right, and it's not, and that's that's different than, for example, iOS versus TV. OS or iOS versus watchOS or iOS versus Mac. So, so are they going to split it off into really a separate code base that has its, you know, its own unique feature set and it's incompatible with iPhone? I don't know. We got a new little, new little toy called Swift UI. Yep. And we also got the new Mac Pro, cheese grater, and voice control, which I think is super cool. Um, shortly after that, Johnny Ive announced that he's leaving Apple. I haven't really noticed fun. much of an impact of that yet. No, not yet. Um, yeah, but that it, one's more of a future one for me of like, I could definitely appreciate um, a lot of the good stuff that Johnny's done over his career, but I really want to see what some some new blood can do. Yeah. You know, it's good to have different folks bring in some new ideas and, you know, if we do this, you know, five years hence, we would be like, holy smokes, can you, do you remember what happened, you know, two years later, this cool thing that came out? Right. That's what I'm looking forward to. Yep. And uh, we also heard about the 
the the Siri gate where um, third party contractors who are hired to work on Siri and stuff like that were able to listen to people's conversations, which seems to be a common problem with these uh, smart home devices, right? Because Alexa has the same issue or similar issue, right? Yeah. So so every assistant that re- requires any sort of um, tuning and and quality control, like all of them have this, right? So I, I don't remember which one was the first one to fall. Let's let's assume it's it's Amazon and then uh, Siri with you know, Apple with Siri, uh, Google with the, its assistants, Facebook with its uh, M Messenger um, bot. I don't remember if Microsoft basically somebody started pulling on the loose thread and realized, oh, everybody's doing this and it's not really upfront. And, and the impact was that uh, eventually a, a version of iOS came out that had the um, the opt out sort of controls, right? So I think it brought to the forefront a lot of the conversation of like, what should we be doing with consents and people being able to review what data is being held about them. And um, I can start to see a, a little bit of this leaking into like the reckoning around um, uh, the ring doorbell cameras that Amazon owns. Where people are like, hey, the, the security on these is kind of not that great <laughs> unless you're a really kind of sophisticated user. Uh, it it kind of sucks. And uh, people are, you know, having their, their kids getting talked to by random strangers who are pranking them on the internet, right? It's, it's definitely, I think, leaning towards the, the industry as a whole having to mature around, you know, what do you do when you have such um, intimate access to people's information? Mm-hmm. Well, next, Mark got his Apple Series Watch 5 with the always-on display. I didn't get one. I know, but you were, you were excited about it. Yeah, I think it's actually, having worked on an Apple Watch app, mm-hmm. uh, it solves a lot of the issues that, that we ran into. Oh, yeah, with with your previous work, I see. Yeah, yeah. And we got the iPhone 11 and the iPhone 11 Pro with the wide-angle lens. By the way, I did do a photo test, I haven't posted it yet, where you were, you were asking, wondering whether or not your fingers get exposed depending on how you hold the phone and mm-hmm. i wasn't i had to really lean my fingers over to get caught in the wide angle display really yeah so i, I thought didn't... for sure it, it would show up um nope. particularly if you tried using it with the um the, the volume button as your as your shutter yeah, I've, I've got of... a picture of my of holding it with the volume button with my using my index finger on it or my or my thumb if i invert the phone um and in both cases i uh, you know there's a picture of a guy t- i took a picture there's a picture of a take somebody taking pictures of me and uh, I took a couple of pictures at the same time, but I really had to lean my fingers over the phone to get them caught in the screen, caught in the in the lens. I mean, so yeah, don't believe that for a minute. And finally, we got the MacBook Pro 16 with the fancy new old keyboard, new old keyboard. Yeah, that's that one's not meaningful for me yet, but I am mm-hmm. going to end up acquiring one. You know, still kind of waiting out to see, you know, if anybody's destroyed theirs yet and, and how it, it fails in any way. Um, and it's going to mean that I will have a year of Apple TV Plus for free. Right. Part of that purchase. So as you can see, we had a lot of Apple things come out in the last uh, last ten years, or a lot, a lot of you know sort of focal points for Apple as well. Um, so I, I had posted in, in our notes here a decade of Apple such slackers, <laughs> which takes us to the next item here, Amy, which you've got on here. Yeah, this is one that I I think has been a long time coming, and that is the fact that uh, Amazon, Apple, Google, and the Zigbee Alliance are finally coming together to create uh, an open standard for how the smart home devices will connect to each other and to services. So I'm really excited about this because it's it's a little bit difficult because it's like, all right, well, uh, you know, everybody wants to connect to Amazon's Echo, so just about every device out there supports that. Um, a much smaller number 
number of devices support the Google ecosystem and a much smaller and sort of pricier, more premium set of devices support HomeKit. And it's just silly that like, you know, if you switch phones, right? If you just said, hey, you know, I really do like that Pixel 4 XL. I want to switch to that. Oh no, I can't because now I, all my HomeKit stuff is completely worthless. It's like, well, that's that's silly, right? It'd be like having to throw out, you know, your say, TV. Is all my stuff you, obsolete now that I've been buying over the last four years? Uh, I, I think... Well, that's a good question. I don't know because it's going to take, you know, some time for this sort of standard to be up and running and devices to be sort of built against it. I, I imagine there will probably be some sort of dual compatibility. And you'll be able to buy a dongle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ninety nine ninety five for a dongle. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, the stuff that's out there right now, it, it was all early adopter stuff, right? I've got, you know, smart switches and other stuff, mm-hmm. that, um, mm-hmm. smart plugs and other things that are um, connected. Up. I've even got a, a little um, like IR uh, outputter, for lack of a better word. I forget the word. It pumps out IR like a TV remote control because it can connect oh, right, to the yeah. Echo and turn on the TV. You can change volume, mute, and do all sorts of other things. Well, that was that thing that we were talking about, whether you could hack your uh, your Amazon or your Google or devices with IR, right? With lasers, lasers. Uh, that was when somebody was trying to use lasers to aim at it and, and impact the microphone. Right. Oh, okay. right, input. Yeah, yeah. This is more... You know the the smart home stuff. Like I've I've never gotten into the like the Philips Hue lights, but I do know people who do have them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have like garage door openers or other things, but it's it's to me finally the industry is maturing enough to say, hey, you know, we really should just have a standard here. Nobody was going to very clearly win this mm-hmm. industry, right? Everybody tried. AT and T has their own solution. Um, Comcast has their solution. I saw something else that I think I think they sell garage door openers or something, and they have like their own smart home solution like it was really silly everybody and their brother wanted to get into this right. uh this industry and it's like well okay i'm i'm sure if i looked at the history books very very early on um you know uh, basic things like electricity were really difficult and they probably were like oh did you buy a general electric plug sucks to be you can't use a westinghouse plug right it's like right yeah like that's sort of the era we were in and i'm looking very forward to the idea of like oh you just have an electric plug you don't really have to worry about the type unless you you know it's not a perfect analogy because you go to other countries you obviously do have to worry, mm-hmm. but I, I, I am, you know, I'm not going to be super happy about having to, to junk my obsolete electronics, uh, presumably before the end of their, their useful life. Cause they're very simple devices, but I do look forward to the next set of things being based on open standards, being interoperable because these are all aftermarket things that I bought, but it, it will be easier for smart home connectivity in the future for, you know, uh, remodels and new builds of, of housing to start including the stuff. If it is a standard mm-hmm. cool yeah well most of my things are i have are, are uh, home pod compatible or ho- sorry home pod home kit compatible but I, I did buy some cheap lights at the at the home depot that were on sale and when i looked at them close once i got them home and looked at them they, they require some special hub which i don't have and the hub's like a 100 bucks like it was a huge waste of time right so yeah i had a a zigbee based device uh hub and system that was i can't remember the name i think it was wink maybe i'm sure i could look this up but i really ended up buying this embarrassing as it is because it was a really cool um very informative commercial starring jeff goldblum hmm. so i was like oh yeah that does seem like a good thing i'll go buy this product oh it's available at home depot and i tried it and it worked for a while and then the very first time that it refused to do something very simple like turn on and off my lights <laughs> i said nope <laughs> you know what i can buy i can buy these two dollar timers and have that turn 
turn on and off my lights on yeah. a regular schedule. Well, Thank this is, yeah, this is, this one also requires a wink and I, and I looked at wink and it's like a hundred dollars, which is ridiculous. But I have the Phillips yeah. ones. So it's the same story with those, right? Like you, still, you have the lights, but you have to have the Phillips hub thing to control them. You know? Yeah. I like the fact that what I saw here in the description, this is, this is going to be, um, uh, IP based. So I assume that means, you know, internet connected based mm, uh, stuff, control yeah. systems, mm. which will, I think be a whole lot better in terms of just really working as is, right? Like if it can connect to the internet and you've got it connected to, you know, like your, your home kit setup or your Amazon echo setup or your Google setup, and it should just hypothetically work. I think that will be, um, that'll be swell. Right. Cool. All right. Well, moving on to our picks, um, I'll go first. Um, so this is for, uh, via my friend D, uh, who pointed this out to us at, uh, at work. Um, it's called Swift for good. And, uh, he found it on one of the sites. He, uh, he, follows and uh, it's a book written by a number of uh, iOS pundits um, notably Dave DeLong Christina Fox Paul Hudson uh, Sharush is in here um, and a number of names and they and Eric Zadun of course and Ben Sherman uh, Daniel Steinberg Aaron Shapiro and um, John Sundell uh, to name a few have written this book that is um, about Swift uh, coding but the profits are going to a charity um, so 100% of the work is 100% of revenues are going to be donated to charity. Uh, it's available for pre-order now, according to this website. Um, it will be released on January 14th. And uh, let's see, what does it say? I'll say about it. Oh, Chris Latner has also written a forward for this. Um, yeah, so it's a cool way to, to get a book about uh, learn if you want to learn how to do Swift and stuff, kind of stuff like that. But it's also um, going to charity. So Swift for good is my pick this week. Over to you, Jaime. Yeah, mine is uh, Fork, which is a git gui mm -hmm. client for mac and windows uh the reason i started looking for this is i was going to use uh git tower i was going to get it set up on my uh my personal laptop and on my uh work laptop and i was even going to take advantage of either a black friday sale or a cyber monday sale mm -hmm. and i realized wait is this a yearly subscription for this thing like, i don't want to pay a yearly subscription for this git ui like, that's 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 bonkers I, this is not a th this is the thing i buy every once in a while and then when a cool new version comes out i evaluate whether want to buy it like how, much would, you, how much would you pay now i mean <laughs> yeah now how much would you pay was for me i said this is ridiculous I, I could choose something else if i'm gonna pay that much in, in perpetuity right i want to be mm -hmm. really sure what's going on so i started looking at other um sort of things out there and i found fork so git dash fork or git hyphen fork.com which mm -hmm. is uh which is free and it's it's pretty useful it actually reminds me an, an awful lot of the ui that you have for for git tower it looks like um, source tree too yeah yeah um, I've used source tree before it, it's got some nice things to it I think this sort of layout just sort of my, my brain sort of mentally deals with really nicely it does have uh, dark mode support or maybe it's permanently dark mode I don't know yes it looks like it has dark mode support and it handles um, showing the you know the different file changes really well it shows them in a really nice way it lets you um, selectively stage and unstage and commit you know individual lines mm -hmm. not just files if you want it does a really good job of managing uh, stashes when I'm, you know, I usually have messy work in progress stuff and I'll stash away something and then come back and say, all right, you know, how can I change this? And it also does a really um, good job at uh, rebasing, um, particularly the interactive rebasing, which is something I just did literally today for the very first time using this client. Mm. And it's pretty, pretty painless, it made it really easy to do. Um, I do know it also has cherry pick capability, but I can't say that I've actually tried that with this. Uh, Git Tower was really good and it sort of 
mentally representing how cherry pick works from like one branch to another. Um, I'm going to assume this works very similarly. Again, it, if you like Git Tower, like I did, uh, or I guess I do, I just didn't want to pay for it uh, the way they wanted. I think you'll like Fork. Um, if you're out there and you have a Windows machine as well, there you go. I don't I don't know if Git Tower is available on. I'll take a look here. I don't think Git Tower is available on Windows. I think it's Mac only. So hooray! This is multi-platform. So it's kind of interesting. I I still do all my version control command line. Do you? Yeah, a little bit old school, but um, yeah, maybe I'll look at something like this. Yeah. Oh yeah, I guess Tower is available for Windows as well. Um, and yeah, I, I will definitely repeat what I've probably said when I've mentioned Tower before that I I do prefer using the command line for uh, a lot of actions, uh, particularly because the command line never ever lies to you about what's available. <laughs> and for <laughs> for iOS developers in particular, heaven help you if uh, if you commit something and then realize, wait, did the core data model files not get updated too? Like you know that little dot slash file mm. stuff that would show the hidden file stuff. Get UI clients, you know, half the time wouldn't ever realize that that was there. Uh, and you'd be like, oh, now I have to, you know, do another commit. And now it's not clean. Uh, the command line will always know what's truly there and available for Git. Um, and I, I do like composing um, commit messages using the GUI um, because it, it, in this case, has a really helpful counter that will tell you, you know, how many characters do you have left for your, um, what's called like the title or the, the, like the very first part of the commit. So that'll, that'll help you keep something that's sort of short and easy to read mm -hmm. within, you know, if you're looking at tons of commits. Um, and I think it also does a really good job of showing the, the, the history in a way that you can just sort of click around and say, well, how did this file change and, and which branches did this come from and merge from? You can get all of that, of course, from the command line is just, for me, I find it harder to do that sort of stuff, but, um, you know, branch manipulation and, and changing, um, different origins and tracking and untracking stuff. I never found any GUI client that did that really well. So I always use a command line for those actions. And, and for mm -hmm. most of the time I use the command line for rebase, although this does rebase really well, or I might just do it out of the GUI. Uh, I mean, uh, what, did you say why you don't use source tree? I haven't liked the, the layout of the UI. Oh, okay. Like it's free. It, yep. it does the, um, uh, patching of chunks. Like if you, you know, if you changed a whole file and they realize, well, I kind of want that to be two commits. You can selectively, um, commit individual parts of a file and it's source tree is really good at that, yep. but just, I don't know, it, it kind of like user preference or mental model. I yeah, just yeah. never liked the way that things were represented in, yeah. in the, the client yeah. source tree. Like I said, I don't, I don't use it. I'm not, I'm not questioning. I'm just genuinely curious why you chose one, this one over the other one. Yeah. yeah. And, and I don't know, like I kind of, I wonder if folks out there end up trying fork as the their first client, if it will make sense to them. Like I mentioned, um, I've been using Git tower for a few years now and this like you squint and it looks almost exactly like tower. So, um, that appealed to me because I've gotten used to that model. Uh, your mileage or kilometerage may vary mm -hmm. if you haven't used this before. To me, it looks a lot like source tree, to be honest with you. I'll give it a try. Oh, I like this feature. You click on it and it shows you all the files that have changed on each commit. Source tree doesn't do that. I kind of wonder if with the, with the improvements that Apple keeps putting into Xcode for version control. And this year, actually, there was a lot of stuff in there. I don't know if you guys even noticed, but they, they now support uh, cherry picking right in Xcode and they support rebasing and, and they do have a viewer. It's not quite, you know, quite this, quite as uh, sophisticated as this with the, you know, they don't have the map with the colored lines and all that, but I wonder if that's coming, you know, so if these guys are going to get Sherlocked next year. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Like I do 
think going back to the the you know the multiple tools in the toolbox idea yep. or the many utensils you have in your utensil drawer um, I do think that's that stuff that's integrated into IDEs like Xcode is pretty good and powerful because they can also do things like you know make stuff clickable in the history of like you know I'm looking at this old version where does this particular command come from right you know it has the ability to do that the command line git does not and and git fork does not it's all just sort of plain text to it um, so I think I look at it as like you know what sort of changes are you looking to do uh, I did not mention here but I also uh, in my, my day job I'm spending a lot of time in uh, Visual Studio Code and mm -hmm. it also has Git integration right yeah it's kind of super bare bones and kind of not that great but you know what I can commit and push stuff pretty easy <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. it's like a very thin layer on top of the command line so if I just need to you know uh, add a file really quickly or revert a file really quickly. Like it's pretty good at doing that. And when I want, you know, more information about the history of things, I'm going to take a look at fork. And if I want to do some, um, you know, some history surgery in Git, um, I'm going to use the command line. So I think it's, it, for me, it's not a matter of, um, you know, one tool for all cases is kind of more like, well, what sort of things am I doing and what am I going to use? What's most effective for me to figure this out? Well, and yeah, not every Mac developer is a Echo developer too, right? So all good. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's pretty cool. So uh, yeah, I guess, hey, Jaime, if people want to get in touch with you, I guess, wait, wait, is that how we end the show? It, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Having so, some doubts. <laughs> no, I just, I just had to do Tim, a mic there. You're new at this. We forgive you. It's okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Tim's, uh, Tim's, Tim's getting the yips. Yeah. He's like, you know what to do. Just go out and do it. <laughs> you're an old pro at this. <laughs> all right. I guess that's it for another week. So hey, Jaime, if people want to get in touch with you, how would they do that? I'm on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair. All right. Mark, people can get in touch with you. Mark R at Snapsoft.com. And as I usually remember to say every week, my name is Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine is where you'll find me. Until next time, we'll say bye-bye. Happy holidays. Uh, Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Happy Festivus. Bye. Happy Festivus. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We, we, <laughs> Happy we definitely should definitely should mention that we will take uh, a few weeks off here for the, the holidays. No, we don't need to mention that. Do we need to mention okay, that? Okay, you can cut, cut out this piece. Out. <laughs> All right. Wow. Whatever. Well, we'll see you next time. Bye. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. This is friend of the show, Mike Van Ockmans. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. Please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. So use the hashtag AskMTJC. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.
So it's funny. I've often thought, I wonder if we could, and I saw a Microsoft commercial for this 100 years ago, which is why I got the idea. If you could actually get together with a group of musicians and play like over Zoom, you know, as long as you had yeah. like a sync. I had that idea too. Like, yeah. And I, I think the delay would be a little too much. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I'm concerned about. Like if, yeah. you, if we were in the same sort of vicinity and there was less internet delay, right, then, then you know, like because the drummer is going to be a beat ahead of everybody and everybody's going to be beat behind him and, you know. Well, if the drummer's off well, by exactly one beat, it's not so bad. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's what I mean. Like, like if I was the drummer and you guys were the other instruments, but what I would be hearing in my headphones would be you guys are late. Yeah. You know? Right, right. So, yeah. So I guess that, that three wouldn't work. So the, the dream of, I guess we'll have to wait for uh, 5G or something. Or no, is it 5G? What's going yeah. on? Well, 5G, um, it's, you know, it's not clear that that will improve the latency problem, even though it yeah. has much higher bandwidth. Uh, although, it, although it might. There's a, there's a game called Rocksmith, which you can play on your PlayStation. And, and when you first start playing it, it really bothers me because there's latency. Like you, you know, it's telling you to play a note and you play the note, but you don't hear it back being played to you. Like it comes back to you late because of the, I guess, latency in the USB cable or yeah. or the software algorithm or whatever. It's better yeah. on the PlayStation 4, but it was really bad on the PlayStation 3. Yeah. And, and ultimately, but, I mean, no matter how good the technology gets, there's always a fundamental limit. You're always limited by ultimately the speed of light. So there's yeah. always going to be some delay, some latency. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I, was, I, was, I think we talked about Brian Cox before. He's a, sort of the the new Bill Nye for the for BBC kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He's a science science dude. I've seen yeah. him lecture. He's written some books too that are pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So he does he does a couple of shows on on BBC and, and he was talking. There's one one Wonders of the Universe is I think a series that you know Carol and I watch on repeat whenever it's on. And he was talking about how they discovered the speed of light by looking at planets orbiting Jupiter. I think it was mm-hmm. right, and the fact that they saw that you know so you could you could sort of time when the when the planet would when the moon would emerge around Jupiter and you could sort of calculate you know how long the orbit around Jupiter was right and then this one guy was given an assignment to to study like keep an eye on this orbit and see if it ever changed and and he found that at certain parts of the year the planet would emerge from Jupiter late right later than expected and in other times you know so and what they determined was that when the earth is on is closer to Jupiter Jupiter, like in the summer, sorry, closer to the sun, in, like in the summer, the, the moon would arrive at expected time. But when it was, when the earth was on the opposite side of the sun in, in winter, yep. it would arrive late. And that's where they got the calculation for the speed of light from. Yeah, makes sense. Because yeah, the, 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 dif- the difference in, in when the moon would emerge was the actual calculation of how, like knowing how far Jupiter was from from earth. They would That's how they were able to figure out that there, there must be a speed of light, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's all the cool Hubble stuff that they've been using over the years and looking back and some pictures they've got of, of you know, star systems that are just appearing now that are like almost right from the very, like the day after the Big Bang kind of thing, you know. Anywho, so much for orbits of sun and spinning and whatever. <laughs> it all comes back to spatial anomalies. All right. Yeah, I was looking at the calendar. I arrive at like 8.30 p.m. Uh, coming back to Seattle on the 1st. So it oh, looks yeah. like the 8th will be the 1st. Where are you going 1st. for the holidays? Go back to uh, to Texas. Texas, ooh, Texas. Let me double check my calendar and make sure there's nothing crazy going on the eighth. When are you leaving for Texas? This uh, this Saturday. Really? Are you watching Star working. Wars any point in time? Or? Yes, I'm definitely going to see it while I'm in Texas.
Hold on, my mouse is acting funny. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure Mr. Kuline will want to do a spotcast. Yeah, we we can we can absolutely do one. Um, it's very awkward because tomorrow, like, it's already difficult now, right? Because they're the the critics have seen it. Yeah, I'm and, not listening to the I'm, critics. I'm I'm being very careful on the interwebs today. I don't care. Starting tomorrow night. Apparently, the Mandalorian dropped an early episode too. Eh? Did you see that? No, because I'm going to wait for Disney Plus until later when oh, all of the episodes so are yeah, done. So for those of you who watch the Mandalorian, they dropped a, an episode, I think yesterday, because they don't want to conflict with uh, Friday's release, right? Saturday. That, 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 that makes sense. That makes sense. Because, you know, it's like, all right. So I'll finish the, 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 the discussion about the, uh, how am I going to view this? So yeah, I'm going to have to very, very carefully use the internet, mm. like basically avoid most social media or start, you know, blurring my eyes when I'm looking at stuff, Yeah, you know, to, to, for safety reasons, starting tomorrow, for sure, I have to just go dark on the 20th like no no social media i'll basically just be in slack a lot chatting with you all so i can still feel well, like we'll just we'll just, play, we'll just talk about spoilers in the in the chat right mark <laughs> thankfully while i'm in the air on the 21st i can't get any spoilers so Golly. i think the 22nd is my my target date get some family members you know to say whoever wants to come this is the tickets show up here if you're not there at the right time you're on your own um and, and go see it then so i'm gonna have to one two three Almost four full days will I have to avoid major spoilers. Yeah, I just found out that uh, my grandson's not going to be able to come. He has to work at Best Buy. Sucks to be him. You're going to have to spoil it for him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I kid, I kid. So I I won't reveal the big big reveal that uh, who Luke Skywalker's father is. I won't tell you about that one. Okay. Yeah, leave leave it for us to figure out. Yeah. And who his sister is too? That's who his sister is too. Yeah, don't don't listen about that one. Yeah, I posted a uh, Star Wars cheat sheet for those of our friends and family who've never seen the movies and want to know what the hell we're doing. So it's it's really interesting the sort of recap of all the uh, various episodes, right? You know, this week is the twentieth anniversary of the Phantom Menace. Mm -hmm. No, it can't be. Can't be. That that came out in in like May. So this year, maybe. Yeah, twenty twenty nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. Which which was that? Was that the first prequel? Yeah. Yeah. Because they had uh, Ahmed Best on. Um, you. They're doing a little bit of Star Trek every or Star Wars every uh, episode this week. So, so Tim, you know, and, we're we're in kind of an exclusive club these days. Why? I'll tell you which, what that one is. It's people who saw Star Wars yeah, first I run think. in the theater. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm so happy to be in that club, but <laughs> at, at that's true. That's true. <laughs> but it is I, I did not exist. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I did not exist yeah. for the first two Star Wars yeah. movies. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. first two. Yeah. First Return of the one, Jedi would have been the first, the first two. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Return of the Jedi in 83, it would have been wow. two, depending on the time of the year. Oh, yikes. Yeah, it's it's kind of weirdly surprising. Like, I just don't understand how people could not have seen the original trilogy. Like, it's constantly available. Oh, <laughs> you know, I was, talking to, the, 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 I was yeah. talking to one of our interns today, and she told me she has never seen a Star Wars movie. Not a single like, one. I could understand maybe they've never sat down and dedicated watched but it's on tv like all the time and and not just like you know like uh, tbs or whoever it is that has it on cable like they'll show it on fairly regular um cycles on uh like fox you know over the air stuff and it's usually during times when you know there's not much going on it's like a four-day weekend or 
um, you know, there's like a big game, you know, playoffs of some sort going on. And this is like the alternative thing. Hmm. Uh, I feel like you would just by osmosis absorb it from the environment. That's the part that I don't get. Like how could people have truly not seen uh, again, not from start to finish, but basically like not seen every bit of content from the original Star Wars movies, even if it's in some weird random order, because it was just randomly on for 20 minutes at somebody's house. And the next year it was a different 30 minutes at somebody else's house. Hmm. That's how I watched uh, Return of the Jedi first time around. I never didn't see it in the theater. A friend of mine had a beta beta copy of it, beta, mm. like a beta VHS copy of it. Mm-hmm. I used to Wait, watch was it, it Betamax or VHS? Betamax, Betamax. Okay, yeah. yeah. I watched a little bit of it, you know, every time I dropped them off and watched like a half an hour and then go home and then six months later watch another half an hour mm. kind of thing, yeah. For, for me, a, a very similar thing I can describe is um, A Christmas Story, mm-hmm. the one with the, the little kid with glasses yeah. who That's wants really, the, yeah. uh, the air rifle or the BB gun. You shoot your eye out, yeah. Like, that thing is literally constantly on for a 24-hour period from like midday December 24th really? to, to December 25th on wow. uh, TBS. And I have seen, it, it is a, a regular thing for me. I don't think I've ever actually sat down and watched the movie, but every year I will have seen the entire contents of the movie because it's constantly on in the background somewhere at somebody's mm-hmm. house. And I could not tell you the actual step-by-step plot of the movie. I know really? the overarching goal. I know individual scenes i have no clue what order these scenes go in because that's not how i watched the movie and that's how i just assume people who aren't star wars fans had to have seen and experienced the original star wars movies that's pretty much how i've seen uh, the national lampoon movies i've never sat down and watched them but i've only ever caught like minutes of them right here and there that's weird yeah those are those are pretty good christmas vacation the original vacation Mm -hmm. like vegas europe is kind of okay trying to find this interesting factoid i was reading today um better christmas movie Die Hard or Gremlins? Die Hard. Mark? Never seen Gremlins. So Die Hard. What? Really? You've never seen Gremlins? How is it possible? I've never seen E.T. either. Really? Yep. Oh, that was surprising. Yep. That was surprising. So they were debating today on a podcast I was listening to. It was, it was actually um, Conan O'Brien's podcast. Um, Goonies. The Goonies. Hmm. Apparently there's a there's a, a age of kids who think The Goonies is a classic film and there's the rest of us who don't think it's a classic film. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much my generation. <laughs> so are you a Goonies fan or not a Goonies fan? Yeah, Goonie, Goonies for Ever. Really? It is the only reason I still have it on my list to go out to Astoria, Oregon. Really? Go go hang out there with it and see some of the stuff there. It's a little out of the way. It's it's basically northwest. Oh, it's actually or at where, least west-ish of Portland. I get it. I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it wouldn't be that far. It's just not super convenient. And I don't think there's a lot to do out there. Hmm. So it hasn't been high on the list. But it is, you know, it's, it's on the list of like, hey, when I'm in the area with a car, you know, go hang out there go see stuff so how about you mark what do you how do you, what do you feel about the goonies i have heard the name of it before i couldn't tell you what a goonie is i couldn't yeah. tell you what the plot of the movie is I, right. I i can only assume that it was based in astoria oregon because you just said that but mm-hmm. uh, other than that i have no idea what's a goonie wow. is it like some kind of creature no oh. no the goonies is the name of these uh, yeah. this ragtag band of kids yeah. who are like the losers Ah, yeah. the, the basic premise is that um, the you know this real estate dude you know like like a typical eighties villain you know the, the 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 rich guy or the bank you know is going to foreclose on this town unless they can somehow come up with money before this particular due date. So do and they put on a show? They go on an make, adventure. make enough money to save the day? No, this okay. isn't the Muppet Show, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which also had a very similar. In this case, they go on an adventure looking for um, pirates. Pirates treasure mm. in 
order to to save the day. Okay, that's the that's the premise of the Goonies, starring um, I think probably most notably now would be like Sean Astin mm-hmm. and one um, of the Hames, Corey Ham, I think Corey Feldman, I think Corey Feldman, yeah, and, and Corey Feldman who was also in Gremlins and the kid from is he? Yeah, the kid from um, uh, one of the second Raiders of the Lost Ark movie. Yes, Temple of Doom. Data who played uh, Short Round in in uh, Temple of Doom. That's right. So yeah, like it, it, I kind of knew when when Mark said he hadn't seen Gremlins, I'm like, oh, there's no way he's seen Goonies in <laughs> yeah, ET. Yeah. Like, there's no way he's seen Goonies. Like this, Goonies is is like a, a like a cult classic mm. level. It's it's like the um, um, Rocky Horror Picture Show right. equivalent. I've seen that. Mm-hmm. I've seen that many times. Yeah. You know, there is um, a new series on Netflix that I just started. It's very you know I've talked about like the toys that made us, which I also recommend uh, yeah. to you guys. Uh, probably GI Joe will make the most sense for you all. The the other ones are kind of more eighties uh, centric. I, I'm familiar um, with most of those toys. Trust me. Okay, so I, I mean I don't know how much it will. Uh, You've heard of Barbie dolls before, eh, Mark? Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the Barbie one was actually more entertaining than I thought it would be. I was like, oh, you know, that's the stuff that my cousins dealt with. Yeah. Um, but the the explanation of the history and some of the uh, corporate backstabbery that went on with that stuff, like the the Barbie episode, was really yeah. good. But Netflix right. has a new series that is the movies that made us. Right. Yeah. Where they have uh, Dirty Dancing, uh, Ghostbusters, mm. Home Alone, and Die Hard. And I've seen the Die Hard and uh, Home Alone ones. Those are pretty good. So I'm looking forward to the Ghostbusters and to a lesser extent, the Dirty Dancing, but maybe I'll be surprised. Have you seen Dirty Dancing? I have seen Dirty Dancing. Nobody puts baby in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Did you watch Rick and Morty last week? The snakes one was the one? Yeah. Next time, stay in the car, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rick and Morty is, uh, it's a trip, man. It's, it's, uh, I love, I love the part where they, they did the, uh, escape from the planet of the apes montage with snakes. Yes. You know, yes. It's, just, it's just like, I just, and you, there's no dialogue. You just have to watch it and absorb it all in there. Right? They, they've referenced like five or six different sci fi movies from that time period in that, in that little vignette. Hilarious. Yeah. How come I have a black eye? <laughs> <laughs> All will be revealed. Such a good show. Once yeah, once the it, season's it, over, I have to go watch it again and again and again and again. Yeah, and, and it's interesting how like there's a, on YouTube there's a whole set of fan theories that you can yeah. find and go really deep into yeah. of you know what's the meaning behind this. Uh, look at you know ten things you didn't notice about this episode. There were callbacks to other episodes, yeah. or here's callbacks to movies. Yeah. Didn't George media. talk about that on on Spotcast? That was his yeah. Pick, I, I think, think right? we do one of those sort of wrap up sort of things of you know what's happened you know star mm-hmm. wars would be the the main driver yeah. the, the reason for recombining um until what picard comes out yeah i i've purposely not uh subscribed to cbs all access i'm gonna have to watch all the short tricks like the same day that yeah, Picard I missed premieres. I missed the last one too. I gotta go back and watch that one too. But like now, yeah, now everything's on demand. I don't have to like, like for us, it's it's free in Canada because we get to go and watch it whenever we want, right? So yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you missed the animated ones, then, right? I think that's what people were talking about. The last one, the last uh, short trek. Yeah, there's at least one short trek that's, that's some sort of uh, CGI animation. I saw one. the one with the guy who does the voice of uh, Bob's Burger, um, Triple One. That's the last one I saw. They're doing one the, a month. The right? same actor that does Archer. Yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah he 
he's in the second, uh, I guess, a third short trek. Mm-hmm. The first one, the first, the, there was a Spock in number one, ep one. That was the second one, right? And then there was the Kibble, Kibble episode. Yeah, but they're like 15 minutes a piece, so I know mm-hmm. I can just binge them all oh, in like an hour yet? or two. No, because it will oh. cost me $6 a month to do so. So oh, I'm going right. to wait until January man, 23rd when Picard debuts. And oh, they I just said so. today, or, or maybe a day or two ago, that Star Trek Discovery Season 3 will be early 2020, which to my now, mind Now, if you means, could pay $45 a year, would you sign up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, because it would be, uh, what, 60, 60 uh, right. a month? So I guess it's just oh, sorry, true. Uh, 60 a year. Yeah. And now, you know, all right, so that, you know, that'd be a pretty significant savings there. And now that they have Star Trek Picard and the um, third season of Discovery, they've got the uh, Chargeau stuff that's coming out, sure. I think maybe yeah. not this year, when they've got the animated series that are coming out. Like CBS is, is getting close to being one of those, I basically have it all year sort of things. Well, so I was coming back to that, you know, Apple arcade price at one thing, as, or as Greg says, every, eventually everything's follow-up, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On that yeah, happy note, I'm going to go watch Mandalorian, so um, I guess I'll talk to you guys later. All right. Have a good holiday. Yeah. Happy right. New happy Year. Holidays, happy Hanukkah. Happy all that. Happy, happy, joy, joy. All that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. And Festivus. Right. And Festivus. We actually have a uh, Festivus celebration at my company, but in, in the San Francisco office, so probably won't go to Do you it. put the Festivus poll up too? or I, I don't know. I mean, they said something about a poll. I mean, they were just quoting Costanza, but but they was, they right. put that in the description in the meeting invite. But, wow. but like I said, it's in the San Francisco office, so I'm probably not going to go. They're not going to web exit? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, uh, I kind of doubt it because that would be evidence. <laughs> oh, right. right, right. <laughs> All, right All right, folks. Talk to you later. Okay, good night. Bye. You later. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.